Hello, and welcome back to Periscope Party Line Chat. Hanging out with some folks today. Uh, we've got a good group. How many of us are on, on the line today? We've got Fluid, we got uh, Alex will be joining us, we've got Tristan, uh, Tim at Inertia, we've got Kalti, Jordan, uh, we've got Raph, Archaic Story, um, there might be some other folks popping in that are um, uh, also in our group here. A couple of things, if you guys want to go ahead and say hello or just uh, introduce yourselves or anything like that is perfectly welcome. Yeah, hey, this is uh, Fluid Fluxation. Well, if you don't know my name otherwise, and uh, I think this is the first party on chat I've actually done with y'all. I've not done a few chats with you, but not any of these Periscope uh, crossovers, so excited to see what becomes of this today. Yeah, who else is out there? This is Tristan. I am also here. Mm -hmm. um, it appears... The Periscope on Twitter. The link says the broadcast is not available in my location. Interesting. Yeah, just throwing that out. <laughs> Anybody are else? Are you located somewhere funny? I'm, I'm gonna try loading it myself. But because uh... I'm, okay. I'm seeing it. Who else? Who is that talking? Yeah, I'm. I'm seeing it. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Let me check. Yeah, because I've got it coming. Uh, through and I've got uh, it looks fine for me I've, we've got nine or ten people in here so it seems to be functioning on the tech side of things yeah, yeah. all right so let's jump into like the yeah, first topic here if everybody's kind of ready um, so n my first question I wanted to pose to you because I see this kind of pop up on Twitter with folks that we run around with quite a bit. Uh, so what does it mean to be a generalist? What do you think that that is? Are you posing that at somebody in particular? Nope, that, that, is, that is the first prompt of our group chat, and anybody can address it. And Also, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I guess, I mean, I've had it, like, in my Twitter bio for a long time now, so I guess I, I say something about it. I mean, in my mind, it's kind of like the modernist man revival of kind of like the notation of like the renaissance man or kind of the jack of all trades style thing i think uh previously maybe in the last uh, generation or so or not just the last generation or so but you know historically knowledge has been so specialized that i think really becoming like highly proficient and highly capable in any field Really, the general advice was to become, you know, highly, highly special, specialized, you know, in your particular field. But I think now, both as a consequence of globalization, of the internet, of just the increased interconnectivity of all ideas, um, I think you have kind of a general convergence of knowledge where fields are starting to overlap. Um, you know, the audiologists are working with the neuroscientists who are working with the smartphone wearable type people. So for me, generalist is kind of just about, you know, not that you sh shouldn't be highly specialized in any one particular thing, but maybe that your most primary specialization should be in having kind of a general world awareness or, you know, kind of something like that, whether you're 80-20-ing <clears throat> everything and just trying to get like a decent understanding a little bit of everything. Or, you know, I think there's there's many different ways to kind of go about this. I think I'd, I've been pursuing this sort of path for many years, and I didn't hear the term generalist. And I think it was Mark Wilcox who put me onto that term. Mm. But um, 
yeah, anyways, that's kind of what it means to me. It's just kind of like a modern revival of like the Renaissance man type uh, archetype. Yeah, I like that connection a lot in terms of drawing on the, the Renaissance man phrase. Yeah, I mean, I think as like the complexity of the world goes up, it'll be better have like a more generalist approach to everything. I mean, like... 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over 125 years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape 20th century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the 1893 World's Fair. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. Are there any books that you guys think propagate this idea well? You know, there are probably some that like specifically go into this. Um, I think I probably got my most like connectivity out of it through ironically through kind of uh there, were, there was a really good book called the flow and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the artist or the author of it right now um but i think i kind of came across this more generalist approach as i was kind of getting into some like sort of more new spiritual ideas and kind of trying to understand energetic flow and i was you know studying a lot of tai chi at the time and I think for me, that was where I at least approached generalism initially. And this is a really good book recommendation. This is just kind of how I came across it was kind of through a spiritual understanding about this kind of interconnectivity of all things that, you know, you, you can't have a healthy mind without a healthy body and vice versa. And that was kind of where I started to become kind of a generalist about my own mind, body, spiritual health. And then beyond that, then it's just kind of expanded out into every pursuit in the world. But I don't, maybe somebody else has a good book recommendation, but, you know, I am a strange loop, maybe, you know, get you prepared for thinking in, you know, non-traditional terms, you know, I, but but I'm not sure that I have a great uh, generalist Bible or uh, handbook, so to say. Oh, that's okay. So actually the book uh, is Flow. Or Tim, you just posted this into our chat. It's Flow by... Uh, Mihai McCheck, uh, McCheck, God bless his name is so hard for me to say. Uh, no, I'm not Mihai, yeah. Mihai, yeah. that's, I believe how it's said. Uh, and obviously like, please don't bash me for my terrible pronunciation of, of his name. I have only crossed paths with it spelled out a, a couple of times, but Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, I believe is, is the name. And he was involved in, uh, uh, psychology research and things like that in the 20th century, if, if I'm recalling that correctly. And feel free, anybody, to jump in and correct me and tell me the real facts or the proper pronunciation of that. I definitely can't correct you on the pronunciation. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lost there. Uh, but but I, and I, and I can't clarify the, the, that it was in the 20th, but that was how I came across him was when I was in my undergraduate uh, neuroscience program I was looking at kind of like non-traditional psychology studies and I think that was kind of where I got into sort of like the study of flow or the study of mind-body synergy and um, going down to grab my copy now to see, just to make see if I have anything else further to say about that but I think I think you, you uh, I think you got the right pronunciation yeah as close as- I think that and actually I was just doing a book where he came up pretty uh, significantly 
in regards to motivation. And I think I posted the initial book preview, just a couple of quotes onto Twitter somewhere. But he, 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 this author mentioned uh, Csikszentmihalyi's research a little bit on flow. And so there's some points I'll probably make in the, in the full review of, of that book also. Though the book I'm talking about right now is Drive, not the Mihai Csikszentmihalyi book. Drive. Okay, and who's that by? Oh, gosh. Um, it's kind of eluding me right now. I'd have to look. Um, no, I don't no, remember. No worries. It exactly. We can circle back on it later. Right, right. But, okay, well, that's cool that you've seen his uh, research mentioned elsewhere, I think. I don't know how I first came across him. Um, but that book, you know, that was kind of the one the one and only piece I'd read by him. Mm-hmm. Um but that's, uh, that's cool that you've seen him kind of reference elsewhere. I guess it gives some validity to the claim that right. probably an interesting guy worth listening to or something. Then um, the other point I like that you made also was um, just in regards to like looking into uh, like energy philosophy and kind of the spiritualism aspect of that. And uh, I think that I could kind of build on that. Right. Sure. Yeah. I think when you step back you know, all of a sudden you start to be able to see these elements combined, but go ahead and speak on it. I will, I really wasn't thinking of like a specific book in mind, but, uh, Eastern philosophy and like Zen philosophy, the whole importance of, um, impermanence and change to me really highlighted the importance of like, you can branch out and you don't have to stagnate, but you can expand, you know? Mm. We got Brian just joined us as well. That's Mr. Brock Von D on Twitter. We see you. his mic and his headphones are off currently, but hopefully he'll he'll chime in a little bit with us. Yeah, just, I think just a real points. real fact, real fast uh, clarification. So I see that the uh, the Periscope is like up and running. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I when I load it on my phone here, since I'm in the Discord chat, it's not giving me any Periscope audio. You know, I think just because I'm in the Discord chat itself. Uh, yeah, does that, anyone have confirmation that the audio is actually receiving on the other end? And I'm fairly that certain it that it is there? because we are getting engagement from some people, and I've got my monitor, the audio monitor, on that side, so it's coming through for me. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Just wanted to double check on that. I didn't, I didn't have clarification. Sorry, right. go back to uh, whoever was about to steal the floor. <laughs> hey. Um. Yeah, I think Tristan was talking about that. We're getting a little bit of feedback. Yeah, from you. yeah go ahead. I don't know. For me, it's like it's kind of like a muscle. Like I don't know. Like for me, like at least with a certain topic, gain a certain level of attitude with certain, you know, with different subjects, and then as gain a certain, start to connect things more. And I think as you start to build those, you know, it's kind of just like building a tree. And then, like, as you build that tree out, as you build more and more complex connections, start to. I don't know. Yeah. No, well, I guess maybe. No, well, I guess maybe. Uh, an, another uh, kind of thought on that idea. Oh, I'll get some more feedback. Yeah, Jordan, you want to mute your mic? Mute your mic. Oh. Um. Is it bad? It. Yeah. Yeah, it's copying everything. Yeah, it's copying everything. Back and over. Yeah, so you should be able to probably just like 
yeah. mute your mic uh, when you're not speaking or something. Okay, I can switch to my laptop. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I was just going to kind of make, I, I think, uh, I don't know if this stands true for everyone here, but it seems to stand true for the majority of people I've kind of come across in this space is that, um, I will just, whoever was going a second ago about Eastern philosophy and kind of Zen philosophy, mm. I, I feel like I've found like a curious amount of us that are in this tech generalist space and trying to understand, you know, both quantum mechanics and, you know, next level high performance computing and cryptocurrencies and kind of all these weird spaces we overlap. I found it kind of curious that a lot of people that I know in this space, you know, as I've been kind of getting to know them better and kind of getting their backstory of, you know, how in the hell did you even end up in this world in the first place? I, I have seen a, a, a high propensity of people that, you know, started out getting into spiritualism in one form or another and usually some sort of you know eastern asian spiritual practice whether it was you know taoism or buddhism or something like that but anything that you know, challenges to... your main view i think is is good once um, once whenever uh, oh, you yeah. explore well, well, and especially i think i think there's kind of like ontological like framing differences in kind of the eastern philosophy sort of mindset that you would have versus kind of the western judeo-christian I don't know, sort of the more dominant narrative, you know, within the Western world, at least, um, where, I mean, it, it kind of, to some extent, goes into, you know, I think there's modern parallels between, like, I hate to use the word, like, new age medicine, but, like, more kind of traditionalist approaches to medicine versus, you know, more, um, I guess, what I would call, like, more modern Western medicine is sort of one aspect of it, but uh, kind of wrapping back around, I, I've just found it curious that a lot of these people who... I've met because of our shared interest in whatever specific weird, you know, tech tangent that we overlap on, you know, and kind of tracing the roots back of how did we all get here? I've, I've kind of found that a lot of us in, in one way or another sort of started this path or started onto this path through, you know, a happen chance exposure to Buddhism mm. or something like that. And, you know, that just kind of gets you Well, in, in the Eastern philosophies, there's much more of an emphasis on, sort of like a unifying principle and that you know we're all the one same thing and and, and i think that is That's still that is still constructed in some way in like the western judeo-christian models but i think there is some a little bit more distinction made where you know like we're the son of god in the western judeo-christian model whereas you know in the eastern philosophy model it's more you know we're all god we're all this one mm. thing you know, it's all all one thing together divinity um, is distributed and, Yes, exactly. And and I mean, I think being a part of uh, or being exposed to that, that type of belief system to begin with um, kind of promotes this idea of like fundamentally everything's interconnected. You know, fundamentally it has to be that way. And, you know, when we were in more early stages of civilization, you know, we're kind of pursuing things. Um, and, you know, when, when technologies are in early stages, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to even imagine how they could relate to each other like when we're I don't know. I mean, just, it, you know, it, it wasn't until relatively recently, historically speaking, that like biology and chemistry overlap, you know, they mm. used to be kind of separate, separate domains. And, mm. you know, that, then everything started to kind of collapse under, under physics a little bit. And that was sort of like a more, you know, taking the unified theory approach. But I think the, the reality is, you know, we start new technologies, we start new cultural ideas and, you know, the kind of, uh, brazen differentness of them themselves you know inherently makes like the early days 
of pursuing this any particular tangent, you know, seem very distinct and different from the all because it's so contrarian or it's so new or it's a different sort of approach. But I think especially in modern times, you know, we're, you know, very quickly tightening that feedback loop between, you know, individual tangent reflecting back into the whole. And, um, you know, that's, again, just where I think, you know, we're seeing this very blatantly in all forms of science and technology and medicine of just this, you know, inner conversions of, of all these, you know, multidisciplinary ways of thinking. And now, you know, you know, it's like maybe cryptocurrency was like a really good example of it where like you can't have, you know, a successful crypto project without like a competent understanding of both computer science and economic theory and game theory and maybe a little bit of information theory or communication theory. And uh, maybe, maybe crypto was the first place, the first practical place that I started seeing kind of this like necessity of uh, kind of convergence in order to make these like, you know, new synergistic technologies that, you know, stand on the top of multiple of these fields. I mean, cryptocurrencies themselves are kind of a good example of like an emergent technology that, you know, wouldn't be possible without an extensive specialization in any one of these particular tangents. But right. so, no, I mean, anyways, sorry, go on. Oh, no, it's all good. Before we swap up to something new, I do want to say, uh, does anybody remember the Danny DeVito movie called Renaissance Man? I do not know. No. I love DeVito, but never even heard of that. It yeah. been before my time. Early 90s film. Uh, he is a teacher or some kind of like boot camp instructor or something like that. Renaissance Man. It's good. It, whenever we talk about the term generalist, I always think about that. That movie. Always oh, thinking about Danny DeVito. Right. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking about the film, and you know he's in it. And who doesn't like Danny uh, DeVito? I mean, no, no. Great. I mean, I, you know, I think Danny DeVito. I think a generalist. You know. So he's, he's... let's look at this next prompt. Uh, so this is something that is probably a little bit uh, more from like my sphere of thinking. Um, but do you guys create content? You know, uh, what kind? Uh, where do you create it? Where do you produce it and publish it? You know, any, anything about the creative process. And, and to me, everything becomes content ultimately. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be the written word. Technically, this broadcast itself is content, right? And uh, there's Absolutely. a lot of different things that you can do with it. But go ahead and uh, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about that. I think I personally, at least in this stage of my life, I've been dreaming more about content formats and how you can release content than the specific content in general, because I guess I'm still in that stage, that perpetual stage of learning. Mm -hmm. For kind of putting most of my content on the website, on the Keybase mm -hmm. website, as an We're losing you a little bit, dropping your signal. Yeah, I think that basically when you are in in that college phase of things or even if you're kind of approaching things academically, you know, you're sponging up a lot of stuff and that's a that's a good process to, to have, but you do also have to synthesize these things. So it's it's one thing to extract a notion from someone else's line of thinking and to adopt it or to even um, mirror that out into the world, but it, it totally becomes something else as you begin to 
craft your own lens out of these ideas that you've gathered and then begin to posit your own observations or just, you know, creating content based on your observations and putting that out into the world. I, I think that whether you're a photographer or you're a writer or you're a musician or you're a sculptor or a painter or uh, you build houses or you, um, you know, anything, you're a physicist, you know, that the, there's content that you can turn out, you can create and, and generate things by synthesizing um, input you know, generally. No, yeah, and I, and I yeah, think you make... Game, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I was just going to say, I, I think there's a, an important distinction to be made about um, kind of, you, you know, the difference in um, extracting and sort of mimicking or taking a belief system or an idea system from somebody else, and, and you can comprehend it and you get it, but you're still sort of framing it in that original author's context, and there is kind of a whole other level of synthesizing it both for yourself and then what, what I think content creation, um, you, you know, that's kind of in then synthesizing yet another level where first you're, you know, extracting it from the original author and forming your own opinion about it, and then you've got to synthesize it into something that is going to be digestible by whatever you think your audience is there. And so there is kind of in the similar way that they say, um, oh, I forget exactly how the adage goes, but, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I can, and, you know, the first, like, reading something the first time is the first level of learning it and then being able to recite it back to yourself and understand it is a second layer and then being able to, to teach it to someone else is like kind of a third layer of actually understanding it. I do, I do think there's an interesting relationship. That's a good um, way of like that, looking that, at it. Well, well yeah. And that, that's, that's kind of the way that I've come, I've come to look at like content production where it's um, sort of, sort of crafted under, under the guise of pushing us all towards, enlightened self-interest so on the one hand it's like you know i want to distribute this knowledge and produce this content for other people because i want to enrich their lives but on the other hand you know there is a self-benefit to be gained from that by teaching other people by distributing to others you know i'm understanding my own ideas a whole lot better and um i feel like that's kind of been the trajectory i've been on the last like year or two uh where Uh, i think i'm getting feedback from somebody who's jordan's mic I would okay. say uh, if you have headphones, Jordan, use use your headphones in addition to your microphone because that's basically the problem we're running into is that your microphone is feeding back the audio feed of us speaking. Uh, just to give you a heads up. I have headphones on, but it's still feeding back. Oh, weird. Oh, weird. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to sort that out as we go or do some more testing in the future. So I'll figure something out. Uh, do we have any traditional content folks here? Uh, writers or anybody with uh, journalism experience? And I know that, you know, where we're at kind of socially journalism is getting a bad rap, but I also don't think that we are in it in an environment where we're actually experiencing uh, classic journalism. I think that we're in a in a phase now because of the um, Fairness Act coming to an end in the '80s. Like we're we're in this landscape where uh, everything has been polarized because it's not really about journalism. It's more about uh, cheerleading 
And unfortunately, we get a lot of very um, advertiser approved or motivated bits of content masquerading as news too often. Well, and, and even if it's not advertising bias or angle, it's it's very often coming from an activism bias or angle, which is mm. kind of its own form of like self-advertising. Right. But no, that, that mirrors a discussion I had recently with somebody where, you know, we were really talking about how rare and, and you know, I mean, truly rare it is to find somebody who is a completely apolitical, unbiased investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's a rare breed today. And I think, you know, it, it's a uh, fairness act. Um, you know, you know, I think I probably associated a lot with just the increased, um, kind of political complexity we've entered and the in- increased kind of political confusion and noise mm-hmm. that we've entered into the space to where now there is just, there's so many competing ideas and the stakes have never been higher politically. See, and that's and the funny so, thing because I'm not really sure that we are experiencing political complexity. As a matter of fact, I think that a lot of the dissonance that we're seeing is because we don't have a complex representative um political landscape and this might goes back it might maybe goes back to something i don't remember if i actually shared that with you before but i think we might have talked about the makeup of congress up until the u.s congress up until 1945 was very very diverse and then after the war we see it basically drop down to two parties and it was not ever like that before and so we get this pendulum switch back and forth and then you know the 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 amount of corporate Um, once you only have these two parties, you're basically, you you can fund them both. And I think that we see that kind of happening. Whereas previously, before the end of World War II, there were so many different parties involved that a a more coalition style working together had to occur to be able to get things done. Whereas basically what we see now is it's like, okay, if I'm not getting what I'm looking for, uh, right now, I just have to wait for the climate to kind of swing back towards my side and then we can enact, you know, this this policy. And then it goes back the other way. And then the other party is kind of ripping it apart and trying to push through their stuff. And unfortunately, like we're not getting um, we're not getting a f- functioning working together uh, at that level. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think that's that's definitely valid and definitely you know adds adds more to the notion of like you know rather than us being in like a truly complex diverse meritocratic representational system or congressional system we we do kind of it 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 accelerates the decline into just pendulum style thinking where you know this turn or next turn or something like that um sort of on that note uh this was news yesterday it was at the uh former ceo of starbucks howard schultz uh, I think he announced on like a 60 minute interview the other night or presidential something. Presidential run. That he, yeah, yeah. That he's looking at an independent presidential run. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, that's right. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting. I don't know personally that, like, I think right now we're, we're, we're so hotly contested in this current pendulum that we have to either have another Trump or a Democrat running on the anti Trump thing. I don't really know that there's space for, like, the independent centralist billionaire president but then also i'm not sure if he was going independent or democratic but uh michael bloomberg has uh, been flirting all year you know and i don't think that i don't think that a third party run needs to um 
look like a centrist or middle or whatever. I think that like, I think that the more we kind of separate these political notions to where people can actually truly get representatives that are pushing for specific causes, then, then that's an enhancement. Um, so I don't, I don't see independent runs or like green party runs or libertarian runners, uh, as I don't see them as taking away votes from uh, these two major parties. I see them as more accurate, accurately representing the political desires of their constituency. Now I'm, I'm with you, but I still feel like we're in such an entrenched, just because the, the fight is so big and the, the two sides have gotten so bloated game. Theoretically, I don't know that like, I don't know how a third party mm. ever becomes prominent. And that's kind of led me to the thinking that, you know, it may not be that a third party emerges, but rather that one of the two or both of the two major parties, you know, has a, has a decided fracture and really splits. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you sort of saw it, but they all kept things together. Like, you know, there was kind of a Tea Party mm-hmm. takeover of the GOP, you know, in the last decade. Um, and that, that really didn't split the party that much. I mean, that changed the narrative of uh, what did it was for doing a time. professionally. Well, it, yeah, it did for a time, but, it, you know, it didn't establish two different parties. Correct. I think maybe there maybe there's a chance that we see that on the left in the next, you know, five to ten years, just depending on how. I don't know how, how tolerant or in see some sort of fracture coming out of the Democratic Party where you do have like the very, very far left anti-establishment, you know, kind of upstart, maybe like running on like a grassroots millennial online activism type campaign. And then you've got people that are just now like, you know, more traditional progressive types. And so maybe you could see a split between like the Justice Democrats and the Democratic Socialists or something like that. But I'm, I'm still kind of stuck on this notion of like, I don't know how a third party really enters the race other than by breaking off a chunk of one of the two dominant parties. So I think that the better way of, of seeking that is to not look at the top and look at the ground level. Because the thing well, is, the idea that, you know, let's look at like Ralph Nader's runs with the Green Party. And that was very much like a top down, like this, this guy is the Green Party and he's our candidate and go vote for him. And like while he got votes because of his background and because the Green Party was gaining steam in the 2000s, you know, he was able to make a name for them, make a name for himself. But the problem is that at the at the lower levels of government, the local towns and regional and state level, there are not enough people that are able to successfully attain representative positions and then you don't have the ecosystem funneling up to the higher levels to kind of uh, create the infrastructure necessary to 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 really have um, you know diversity in Congress or the potentiality of a of a non uh, Democrat or Republican um, presidency. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a problem with, like, the first-past-the-post voting system. 
I mean, the problem with this system is that whenever anyone tries to, like, vote on any party outside of the Republican or Democrat party, it's like, you know, people almost consider it, it's like a self-reinforcing thing. Like, people almost consider it like a wasted vote. Right. You know? And it's not. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, but that's just people's perception. I don't know. I think, but, but, but I, I think, Michael, you make a good point about it, like, locally, and that's, that's I'm, I'm very much with the, the thesis that, you know, all of our current institutions are failing us in part because they're not organic enough, they're not bottom-up, they're not, you know, like, lo- I, I, I think localism is, you know, kind of the key to a lot of our future problems that we're going to be dealing Absolutely. with. Um, and, and I do, I, I kind of get the idea that, like, it does feel like a throwaway vote in, like, the presidential election to vote Green Third Party because there's just no way that it's going to happen game-theoretically okay, you know, at that let's, level. Okay, but let's look at another point here that, if, but then on the local level, it is it is extremely important. On a, on a was, national level, whole, though, Will, if they if these parties can attain a, a certain threshold percentage of votes, they get federal backing, and that is incredibly important because it not only gives them uh, financial matching, but it also puts them on the ballots in these states, and that is critical because what what we see at the state level is that if you're not a major party. You have to jump through all these hoops to even get on the ballot. So, so with that, with that system, is that based on the turnout in the presidential elections, or the mm-hmm. turnout in like the, the state, the local, no. county elections? No, for the okay. for the presidential election, it has to do with how your previous candidate performed in terms of percentage of the total vote. So it does matter. It is not a throwaway vote. That is a complete fallacy. That's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's. I also think it's just an, a thing with regulation where, like, the parties in power are going to assert all these laws and they're going to do all these – assert sure. all these policies that will maintain the two-party system because, you know, it's an incentive to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I mean, you even saw that with the uh, the DNC in the last presidential election pretty much handing it to Clinton. And, you know, uh, you, you know, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to the claim that, you know, Bernie kind of got stifled and Bernie never really had a real shot. Oh. Or they, they, felt, they felt threatened, and so they, you know, the powers that be, you know, coalesced to, you know, put their dog in the top spot. And um, yeah, yeah, that, that 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 is a huge problem. I mean, what you, the point you bring up, Michael, about the, uh, you know, e- even hitting the percentage threshold to get the kind of state or federal funding needed to be on the ballot, that is a, that is a huge point. I definitely agree with that. But I still, though, as far as like how how this movement really manifests. I think it really has to occur on on a local level, and Absolutely. I think the, uh, I don't really see any third party doing that well. I mean, the Libertarian Party is is a mess right now. I mean, right. there there is a few a few sane coalitions and you know some good talking heads, but you and know, like we talked about large, before, like they their national headquarters is not too far away from where I live, so like there is um, they do have some presence here, but also at the same time, given that they are so close they really don't have uh, very good representation as it as it no and, and I mean one thing that I think was interesting there was that idea I don't know if it was in the 80s and the 90s um, but uh, you know it was kind of the whole plan to move all the libertarian voters we're all gonna move to one small state take over mm-hmm. one state it's a long-running concept that's been floated around yeah they did yeah, that in the 60s that. too though with like the hippie yeah. movement talked about doing that so Let's not get too deep into politics. I do want to change gears a little bit before we just end up talking about politics for the next half hour. So so basically, uh, let's kind of just completely change stuff up 
and talk a little bit of like technology and science stuff. I know that there are people uh, here on the chat that are super into science things, super into tech things. And uh, basically, how about this is the prompt. Why doesn't somebody grab the mic and talk about something interesting in terms of science or technology that they saw happen this week? And we'll jump into that. Anybody? Mm, I was kind of out of the, out of the news I mean, this look. week. I didn't, I didn't really see anything scientific going on. I've just been following political stuff, which is where we're trying to steer away from. So <laughs> maybe I'll pass the mic to somebody else to at least start that ball rolling. Sure. Uh, Tim was uh, watching the other – I guess uh, Dios was doing a little uh, tournament against uh, a couple of pro players in StarCraft. It was a pretty oh. interesting series. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? You kind of cut out halfway through for me. Uh, Google's uh, DeepMind, uh, their AI, uh, played against uh, various StarCraft uh, pro hmm. players. And oh, the, oh yeah, that's just, right. I did see that float across. Yeah, seeing the way that uh, it interfaced, I guess, the uh, – tactics you use were pretty interesting what else can you tell us about that because i don't think i read the article i think i just saw a headline uh from watching it um it was a little weird it was hard to distinguish uh, it from an actual um like uh it was doing like fake outs in the builds and stuff hmm. it was quite interesting that is interesting yeah you know i, I might have actually seen something about that and, and maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking of a different uh ai playing video game recent story but I, I think it actually was that one and i think something about or maybe maybe the headline that i saw about it was that they had programmed kind of the neural net to the gans or whatever they were using they they instead of trying to program them to win i think they were programming them to seek novelty and to stop taking repeated paths mm-hmm. and to like learn from what the human players were doing and uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, I think they, they did like kind of have like surprisingly disruptive results and they played really well against the human players. And it wasn't that the AI was trying to win necessarily. It was just trying to do novel paths. And I think maybe that had like, a game theoretic advantage where, you know, the AI was able to like kind of see real quickly what the, what the other players were doing and sort of like do something different. Um, in accordance to them, I, I have something another story, but I, I think I read something in the last like yeah, yeah. day to yeah, that effect. So here's okay. one I got uh, that actually I was. This is something that I thought was really really cool, and I'm scanning back through my Twitter to see because I think I liked something about it. But there was there's a new, well not probably not new, um, but it's. Uh, a profile that I've only recently started following called Unwriter on Twitter, if you guys have seen that. And it's a programmer of some kind. Um, and the person had basically put a chat bot onto Bitcoin SV. So they had... Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love what's happening with... Um, like SV watching the stuff that's going on there. Uh, I know that um, Phil had been pointing at uh, somebody was posting biblical verses into the OP return uh, of SV. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> but then also just the notion of like this chat bot on there and it kind of running and um, – interfacing with with other people 
conversationally and in very basic, you know, chatbot kind of style of things. But either way, that is amazing because it undermines to me, it undermines a lot of the other projects that we see out in the world. Um, you know, I don't want to like dog anybody or anything like that. I mean, there, there, there is value in, in an explorative nature to a lot of these things, but I think the, what we see, <laughs> I just got a, a comment on the, the periscope. Yeah, man, I, I, I like the, uh, the little rascals. So I threw that up. Um, but we see things like, you know, EOS or Neo or uh, even Ethereum where, you know, they're trying to be these computational uh, platforms, but I don't really know that we need them to be separate. You know, I think that what when we look at forks of Bitcoin, that basically a fork of Bitcoin can do ultimately what those things do but can also be part of that braid and uh, yeah. and gain a lot of yeah like i mean i, I heard someone i heard someone say once that like the biggest problem with ethereum was the miners and the fact that like the, the ethereum doesn't really need its own chain like everything that ethereum sets out to do you could do on the the main chain the main bitcoin blockchain and that like there really wasn't much of any purpose for like ethereum miners other than the fact that the miners just started up in the first place, you know, like it just has that internal momentum. Well, and, and there's just the problem that, I mean, there, there's like kind of a multitude of reasons, but I mean, the, the world computer is not going to be on Ethereum because Ethereum just has a, a, like a multitude of scaling issues. The entire roadmap, the entire, like from day one, the plan was to eventually pivot to proof of stake, which like, I mean, that's, that's like starting an economy and, and saying, you know, we're going to be socialist for 10 years and then we're going to switch to capitalism. <laughs> or it, or it, it's just kind of a crazy thing. And not, and not, that, not that the switch can't technically happen. Right. But, it, but changing but I think gears it was, like that is tough. It, it's tough. And I don't think it was really truly like thought out and understood very well at the time. And then, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a no-brainer that when that happens – Whenever proof of stake does manifest, if if it ever does, maybe it just stays, you know, a side project with Vlad and Vitalik for you know the next two years, and everyone gets bored and moves on. But even if it were to manifest in say like eight months from now, there are a lot of people that a lot of Ethereum miners that you know they do not want this. You know, they they, they make a comfortable, wealth like happy living, you know, mining Ethereum, and um, and especially since Bitmain released, I don't know what it was, the E three or whatever, but they had like their Ethereum specific ASIC. Um, you know that 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 further sinks. You know the the sunk cost for the miners even further. It was a little different when everyone was just mining with GPUs, but I think it's inevitable that when proof stake comes it's going to result in a chain for like a, a chain split. There's just no way that it's not. And then the question that I have that I've never really had anyone answer to my satisfaction is like, so if, you know, we saw Ethereum fork with ETH classic, but like that was back when Ethereum really didn't have much going on. It had the DAO and that was a failed project and whatever. But like if Ethereum were to fork today and split, what happens to all the ERC twenty D apps? Like, do they all fork as well? Do they all like get a double copy? I guess I, I don't really understand oh, enough what too. would happen technically there. Yeah, um, I don't think I I have an answer for that personally. No, but 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 I mean, even aside from that, like the just based on the way the Ethereum coding like environment operates, 
is that it's it's so like state dependent where you've got all these contracts relying on the past past contracts that like Ethereum like pushing code across Ethereum has to be serialized. And I think sharding may be kind of a, a, another one of those like vague promised you know solutions that mm. solves this in some sort of way. I don't, I don't really understand how, how sharding solves this that well. Um, so I'm kind of getting outside of my depth here, but well, like you, you, you can you can operate a computer system atop Bitcoin and you know run code in parallel because of the way the mempool works and the way you know transactions operate. But with Ethereum, because they need to keep states consistent for you know these D apps and everything to stay on the same state, um, you know everything's going to be forced to run serially at least until this you know sharding innovation comes and solves exactly. that problem. But so, yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole idea, it's, it's kind of funny to me that like Ethereum's hype and buildup has been on this like world computer promise. And, you know, now it seems like the reality is gradually sinking in that like, nope, it's probably going to be on Bitcoin, you know, one way. I mean, or another. I, I mean, I think everyone's excited about that, like world computer narrative, but no one's really applying it to Bitcoin. I mean, I think it's like a time dilation thing where like everyone sees Bitcoin as like digital gold. I think that's like the main narrative that they're pushing right now. But I think that's like a false narrative. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody's really pulled up inside the monetary value of it. There's so many more as- other aspects. Well, and also just the idea that, like, to think that, you know, we, we know, you know, 10 years into this technology, like, a clear and decided view of what this technology really is. I mean, it's like trying to decide and predict what the internet would be, you know, and in, I like, think, the late 90s or I something. I think that's the value of forking also, is that... Um, it encourages people to try experiments and to right. to basically allow for things to work or to fail, you know. And that's no, no, absolutely, and and that's where I like what the guys at SV are doing because um, they seem to be. I mean, you, you know, regardless from all the drama and you know the fake Oshi and all that stuff about right. Craig S. Right, you know. But, I mean, he's know, not really in control. No, 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 no. I mean, he's not really in control. And then even beyond that, like, not all of his ideas are just like, it's not like because he's a crazy person, all of his ideas are crazy. And, and I, I mean, I, I think the, the idea of, uh, you know, radically pushing the frontiers of what a blockchain could be. I mean, Mark, Mark Wilcox has talked about, you know, you could have a blockchain that technically forked every block. Mm. Um, you know, you could have, well, Craig S. Wright's talked about you know, having a blockchain with one terabyte size blocks and not that we need any of that stuff necessarily right now. There's definitely not the transaction volume, but they're experiments I, 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 to try. I, well, yeah, they're, they're experimenting. They're playing with something new. And I think the, the main community seems to want to like the main Bitcoin community wants to kind of lock down this narrative of like, Oh, both it's, it's about digital gold, not about, you know, um, you know, uh, digital cash you're paying for your coffees I think it's and about they both. also well it, of course it's about both and then they also want to walk down the narrative that miners don't control bitcoin users do that full nodes are the most important and that miners are just like this you know service we rent and the miners aren't be like the biggest skin in the game and in they, they want to use the uh segwit 2x drama like a, a one-off, you know, the first battle in in what I think is going to be like a multi-decade war of ideas. You know, I, I don't think Definitely. I don't think I don't think we're going to have like a a conclusion to this, you know, anytime soon. But the main community does want to take Segwit Two X as an example and say, look, see, all the miners wanted it, and the full nodes didn't, and we got our way. So miners don't run Bitcoin. And right. it's like, well, oh, yeah. that's just like one one point, and it's a much more complex dynamic than that. 
I think that's cryptocurrency's main innovation. It's like our ability to fork and our ability to like uproot the status quo is like the thing that gives cryptocurrency its value. It's like the problem is it's like once something gets big enough, once people get rich off of it and once people acquire power, it's like they'll do everything they can to hold on to that status quo, to hold on to the narratives mm. that keep them in power. But the it's rapid like, iteration so the, is more powerful. Right. It's the forking that, that makes things, um, you know, fluid. It's the forking that keeps innovation going. Right. Yeah, it helps strengthen. Yeah. And I think, like, the, the ability to fork is just battling against that human tendency to kind of hold on to the past and hold on to old, tired narratives. I like what you're saying right there. And I think that, uh, you know, let's swap up topics on that note, right? So, you know, what is the human spirit? What is the human experience, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a, a fork right there. Yeah, we're forking <laughs> the broadcast right now. That's funny. Um, the human spirit. Tribal. I don't know. I gotta think about that. I gotta let that sit for a second. It's something that I've been kind of interfacing I've with a bit. Of it to be, I've always thought it to be some type of almost electromagnetic force, hmm. as you'd say. Well, I think, like, uh, the biggest parts of being human is, like, just, like, getting into flow states and just, like, living a good life, you know? I think that's, like, that's what makes humans human. Yeah, I think that those... Like, we just got to do the things we're we're designed for, you know? Yeah, I'm increasingly... I don't know what I... What I about the spirit anymore and the soul. I don't think I... When I was younger, I had, like, much more solidified ideas, Mm. and now I'm kind of questioning everything a lot more, but... I'm kind of coming to this um, conclusion that I, I tend to think of, um, you know, m- most of the actual wet wear of our bodies or, or the brains, the nervous systems, all the, all these sort of things as um, kind of kind of kind of being like our our biologically evolved filtering mechanisms and gating mechanisms and like you know means to signal to other parts of the body and to have reactions and stuff. But I kind of think of consciousness almost as like this unexpected accidental emergent phenomena that like arises, you know, when, when you have a system that reaches a certain level of complexity and has a certain level of like, um, tendency for like self reflexivity. And, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know how necessarily like initially emerged within us or within, you know, early life or you know kind of what my thoughts on that are Mm. but i think that sort of crosses over and this has been this has been like a newer innovation in my thinking in the last year or so but um crosses over with artificial intelligence which i've been heavily like pushed towards you know not not even thinking in the terms of artificial intelligence but thinking in terms of like emergent intelligence Mm. and that you know you're, you're you're building a system and you know people have all these questions of like you know will a will a robot ever be able to replace a human would ever be able to do everything a human does and maybe who knows that's probably not even the most important stuff to really focus on really yeah, um, i think you're right there i mean what if a robot had or if, if a, an autonomous digital intelligence had the cognitive capacity of a human or more but it doesn't have the biological restrictions why would it want to have to have that no, you know, yeah, why wouldn't yeah, there, it want there, something there's, else there's a lot of yeah, and, and there's a lot of mechanisms that we have that, like, you know, we're, we're running on, um, you know, biological time. And, right. and you know, there's a lot of those things we don't want. <laughs> no, no, exa- exactly. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, just adaptations that we've had to evolve to survive, you know, the cruel, 
cruel throes of life and nature and you know you know we've had to like evolutionarily harden ourselves but yeah like like a, a digitally emergent new consciousness you know probably wouldn't want most of what we consider intelligence a lot of our, our tools are, are really just like yeah. coping mechanisms and survival skills but you know it survives in a totally different domain it operates at the speed of light it's no, the notion of time itself would be different to like an, like, an, like a, a digital system like that it wouldn't be running on the same biological time clock that we are hmm. um so yeah i, I yeah. the whole idea of like making robots like humans is kind of silly um you know, if anything, we should be thinking more in terms of like, you know, how can humans be more like robots? How can we break out of our, you know, evolution, evolutionarily conditioned pathways? Mm-hmm. And how can we start thinking about our own intelligence in new ways? And I think well, that, that's some, gonna, some of what comes up with the flow state stuff. But I mean, I was going to say, it's like we think in a very specific way. Like it kind of comes back to what you were saying. It's like I, we think we have a biological time clock. Like we think chronologically. And I think like if eventually we'll start to like develop these intelligences that don't think the same way we think at all. It's like they think in a completely mm. different way. And like, we'll, ha- well, I think eventually we'll have trouble like relating to, to these things, you know? I think you see, yeah, you, you see those like little things like uh, Facebook had that AI project like last year that within like two weeks of it being live, the AIs were communicating in a secret language that, you know, the researchers couldn't read anymore. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I mean, yeah. I think that's, that, that's like a very inevitable early conclusion. It's just that these things are going to, you know, the question of like, are they more intelligent or less than us? You know, that's, that's kind of like a silly semantics question, but the, it's, it's no question that like these things are going to be doing types of intelligence that we don't understand ourselves, you know, in very short order. Um, Can't even communicate with. So, so here's kind of a question on that line. Do you think? I mean, I, not, not not to speak about like early early stage AI and stuff like that. Hey, but Alex, but just as we too. actually, hey guys, what's up, Alex? Uh, what's up, Alex? Hello, hello. As um, as we do actually progress towards like more, you know, whatever it ends up looking like, more complex, you know, emergent or artificial intelligence. Do you think this is the, the initial question was about you know what is the soul and everything? Can well, AI, not so much what is the soul, but what is the human can spirit? AI will be spiritual? Can you know? Or, or, or and another question would be like you know, would an extreme, super generalized AI be more or less spiritual than us? And you know, I think my whole life I've thought you know the notion of like the soul kind of being separate than from the computers, and you know they could never really totally capture the human experience, and they could never really grasp the spiritual. Mm you know, profound truths, but I've actually kind of I've started to lean the other way where, you know, not that their grasp of spirituality or meaningness or, you know, any of this stuff will be the same as ours, but uh, but I'm tending to think that actually, I think as the systems evolve, you know, they're, they're going to be more spiritual than us, more woke than us, just because so, they're going to be more synergized, you know, they're, they're going to be wanting this synergy type phenomena that we, we used to strive for, you know, but they're going to be doing it on, you know, orders of magnitude we can't even really comprehend, so. Perhaps, but I do want to clarify, I, I want to make sure that we don't um, conflate spirit and soul here. So when I'm saying the human spirit, uh, I'm talking in terms of what drives a person or what drives a society or what drives uh, a group of people to proceed and to, okay, and, okay. And, and, and that's not to say that the, the conversation that we've had in, in regards to spiritualism and, and soul is uh, not 
a part of that because it certainly is. But I also yeah, want to speak pragmatically, making, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I like you can go food. No, well, I, I, I guess I was just say uh, I don't know that I know or anyone knows. Maybe kind of the like what what fundamentally drives us. I think might be our higher level abstractions of what fundamentally drives the universe and you know i see the universe expanding in both complexity and organization and you know it's increasing chaos but it's also increasing the complexity of the system that it exists within and i think fundamentally that's kind of what we're trying to do and that's kind of just the you know base prerogative and drive of the universe itself is just this kind of increasing complexification of, of, of everything and expansion in all directions and then I think, you know, we kind of emerged as like biological accidents or sort of weird emergent feedback loops that started to like, you know, divide and self-replicate and, you know, find ways to survive and whatever. But so, so I mean, I mean, I think we don't really know what actually drives us, but I think what, act, what, what does actually drive us is kind of some higher level abstract, abstraction of the fundamental thing that drives everything. I mean, I think it's kind of like, like, like I think you, you can you can think in terms of entropy in regards to like human thought and human drive and like what drives us towards things and kind of the pursuit of the unknown or the pursuit of comforts. And, um, yeah, you, you, you take it away. I think Tim, you're about to say something there. Yeah. For some reason, like, I don't know, tribalism kind of popped into my head when you said that. And like the reason why is because I think like the thing that drives society or the things that drives like any society or like any tribe is like, I think, like, it's, like, most of that is just tribes, like, looping off of their original telos, so, like, their, like, shared myth. It's, like, I think, like, every society has, like, their constitution or, like, their shared set of laws that they draft when they, like, first become a thing, and then, like, the rest of that society's existence is just, like, the pushing forward of those core ideas, you know? And I think, like, that's, I don't know, I think that's mostly what kind of drives human society. So what is a society, then? You know, where do you... What level or what number of people designate a society? Um, I mean, I think, well, I think originally society is like when things were just starting out, societies were just like a few hundred people, you know, societies were tribes. And then like eventually we had to scale up, you know, so we had to we had to concoct these like central authorities to initiate trust between people. OK, so, so I don't know. I think is our group a society? Here? You're talking about like Dios? Yeah. No, I think I'm so. talking about I mean, this think... chat specifically, what we're mm. participating oh. in right now, or even just, um, you know, our Discord group um, well, I think specifically. Society. Well, there's a mutual shared understanding between us, and I think that's the thing that's driving this conversation. That's the reason we could relate to each other and share ideas and get into flow and all that stuff. It's like you need that mutual foundation to build anything. No, society. Like, uh, uh, society has, like, uh, set, um, norms that have been passed uh-huh. down. I think, I think Dios is almost a society in and of itself, you know? Like, it has its own shared myths, it has its own telos. Like, when I say myths, I don't mean, like, like, myths as in, like, fake stories. I mean, myths right. as in, like, a Our shared types. ideology. Yeah, basically, More yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, sort of, I think we've been doing what any society does, and that's just kind of, like, scale the those initial conditions you know well you know kind of sort of take on on some of those notes about tribalism you know you know i think you you can make a lot of parallels between uh the behaviors of like early early tribes and tribal leaders and forms of organization 
and then see kind of organized religion as an extension of that. And, you know, that was, that was like a guiding governance model that we had for you know, many, many centuries. Um, but kind of two things I was thinking about was one, what does the society mean? Like before societies mostly existed independent and localized to themselves. And then they might have some overlap with like neighboring societies or, you know, you might be a colonies, your society and the federal government starting to emerge. But, you know, for the most part, things were relatively localized, even though we had some global trade. But I think things are very different now, just in the last 20 years, now that we have an entirely new type of global society popping up on the Internet, on kind of the global Internet consciousness. Mm. So, you know, one, what, what does that say about societies or what does that mean about them going forward now that like you'll never have like a society that exists independent of itself anymore like everything is always going to be connected back to the global society because we just now have those tools there are no you know you know with, with exception for like you know like like un, uncontacted tribes and you know kind of weird mountain man culture or whatever mm-hmm. for the most part you know there are no independent totally distinct societies that don't have any feedback loops with the global society so i think that's kind of changed things and then also on that note sort of with the religion thing uh going back to the nietzsche quote of you know god is dead and you know ta- i think he at the time was like very cognizant recognizing that like the governance model you know portrayed and, and, you know, maintained by organized religion for, you know, many, many years uh, was coming to an end and that, you know, new types of philosophy and new types of thinking and new types of ontologies were going to disrupt the role of the church. And, um, you know, I think that was, that was, I, 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 at least in my take, I think a lot of people misunderstand and misinterpret that main God is dead quote where, you know, people think that, you know, Nietzsche was trying to trying to call out these religions and say, you know, they're failures and God is dead and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and you know, I, I kind of take it in, in the opposite sense that, you know, Nietzsche was recognizing that, like, these these institutions, these organized religions, you know, their day was coming to an end. And, you know, even if there were faults within God and within the organized religions, you know, they served a crucial purpose, you know, a, a governance structure, a metronome or whatever you want to have it, you know, something to unify the tribes. And I think um, that's that's another thing that's happened that's interesting in the last hundred years is, is kind of with the rise of not just atheism and kind of the fall of organized religion, but just kind of the, and, and this goes hand in hand with the internet and also, you know, you know, the ability to distribute ideas widely. You can be you know, in a small town with no revolutionary thinkers, and you can get exposed to neo-reactionary ideas at the age of fifteen. Then, now, right? You know, it's an entire it's an entirely different ballpark. So, I, I think that it's almost like societies and tribes and a lot of these, you know, institutions and organization styles that we've been using for you know throughout all of civilization. They they operated under fundamentally different conditions up until the last say fifty years or so, and I think now there's new types of feedback loops with connecting like everything back into everything in the same way that you know 100 years ago or 50 years ago you know you might be a weird guy and you're just a weird guy in your town and there's no other weird people in your town so you just stay weird and you don't have kids and you die but you know now you can be a weird guy in a small town and find you know a thousand other friends on a weird subreddit dedicated to whatever your weird thing is there's just there's all sorts of new ways to propagate ideas and so i think a lot of the fundamental premises that our organizational structures like tribes like societies like communities were built upon you know it's like they were built upon shifting sand and i think the entire ecosystem in which human organization 
occurs nowadays is fundamentally different than it's ever been before. So, um, I, I think like globalization <laughs> is a blessing and a curse, and I also I agree with you. I think it's kind of like a transitionary period. You know, it's like I think like as the internet sort of started to bind everyone together, we kind of morphed. We kind of morphed into like this monoculture of sorts. But I think like that's kind of starting to sort itself out because I think one of the trends that's Did happening. Did we lose is, Michael? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, were you going to say something? Uh, Sound like you were. I was, but no, no, go ahead. It's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, don't sweat it. Um, okay. What was I? Um, oh, yeah. So, monoculture. Um, yeah. So I think like everything kind of trended towards a monoculture, which is like, which kind of screwed things up a little bit. I think like it kind of made life a little bit less interesting. But I think what is kind of happening is that now that people are spending a lot of time online, people are sort of starting to find their own little groups on the internet that is and all of the all of the like connections between people is going to start to shift towards interest instead of proximity yeah which i think is actually a good thing for yeah i agree with you yeah i think that's a really good point and that promotes localism and bottom-up organization which is you know i think we all agree is kind of a good a good thing i think that's kind of a funny thing i was thinking about was like you know in the early days of the internet the way it was kind of sold the, the the benefit of the internet and what it was going to do to the world was, you know, it was going to create this like, you know, like, like a global citizenship, a global society and like a one singular type, you know, community. And I think that was like the romantic ideal of the, of the internet and at least in its earlier days. But no, I, I think kind of mirroring what you were just saying, um, I think as, as it's evolving and getting out of, out of its infancy, you know, we're seeing that like less and less, you know, you know, maybe we, we want to have these globally connected networks, but that doesn't mean I necessarily want them to all be in the same pool. And, and you know, people are starting to become more tribal online. And, you know, people are, you know, saying, you know, is that a consequence of the political environment or whatever? But maybe that's really just like a natural evolution of like, you know, the Internet leaving its infancy is it started out kind of naive trying to connect everyone. And then the reality is people like to cluster into groups and have interests. And so the internet becomes tribal. And then, you know, I don't know what comes after this per se. Um, I mean, I think like you saw that happened with Facebook. I mean, Facebook got big and everyone started connecting and all the connections were proximity based, right? So like everyone was connecting with their friends that they knew in real life. And I think like as time went on, I think people started to realize that they can sort of get better information. They could get more things that um, appeal to them not through information about their friends through proximity, but through, you know, ideas about the things that they were actually interested in. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you make better friends. And I, I definitely, right. just my, my experience with Twitter, I mean, I made a Twitter account in like 2011, but I didn't really start using it heavily until like 16 or something like that. Um, but I mean, I mean, the, the, the friendships that I've made through Twitter are, are profoundly different than like, you know, relationships that I've kept up with that, you know, I might've went to high school with this kid and, you know, we were best friends by proximity. He lived down the road from me, whatever, you know, kids have enough overlap of interest anyways, you know, whatever ha- can happen. But yeah, as you kind of flesh into like adulthood and really kind of zeroing in on what your interests are in particular, I mean, I, I can't imagine where I'd be without Twitter. And not just Twitter itself and the ability to tweet, but the ability to like find people, you know, based on interests rather than proximity. That's, right. you know, that's a big reason I, I don't even use. And I think most people are shifting away from Facebook. They're using it less and less. <clears> I mean, <throat> they still use it. I mean, it's, it's in my mind, it's like the best way to keep tabs on your friend's birthdays. And, you know, the messenger app is convenient because everybody has it. But sure. other than that, you, you know, you know, the, the actual like appeals of Facebook, you know, are relatively minimal other than just like the, 
network effect of, of you know, their messenger service because, again, everyone has it. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I definitely have a lot more stock in, in social networks and communities that can organize, you know, based on, like, interest rather than proximity because proximity is increasingly becoming less and less of a problem. I mean, we'll, we'll see maybe, you know, in the future we'll have some swing back where people are somehow – less able to move and proximity becomes very important again but you know kind of in the current paradigm i can see just you know more and more people are working from home able to work and travel you know you know remote operations and uh, and doing things like what we're doing here you know we've got what six, six or eight people in a group here all having a chat all across the country all across the world um so yeah no definitely it's it, it, it's an entirely new frontier um and i think the networks that capitalize on that well, has Kendall hear me now? Yep. Yep. Cool. Has anybody here read The Revolt of the Public yet? No. Is that a book? Yeah. It is a book that is uh, probably uh, worth like 50 bucks because of how nice it is, but you can get it for $15 wow. on Amazon. It's a hardback. It's like uh, can you 400 drop, Can you drop that um, reference into our chat too? I will. Or just put it in the lit page. Or the channel. No, I'll, I'll drop it for you. No problem. Um, so basically, what this book talks about is by a guy named Martin Gurry Gurry or something. And um, basically, it's the, he wrote it in like uh, 2014 as an ebook. Okay. And um, some San Francisco, um, some San Francisco company. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to get the link now. Uh, uh, you know, published it in a uh, or a gorgeous uh, hardback edition wow. that is sixteen dollars shipped. That's um, so, what it talks about, uh, he called um, all the stuff that we're kind of seeing and like how the I the being able to build from the bottom up uh, based on interest um, as opposed on where you grew up where your family was shackled to for lack of a better word um and basically like you know once everyone got a computer in their pocket um you know 2008 or so you started seeing bottom up um uh and the first the first thing he talks about is obviously uh each the arab spring in egypt Mm. and uh he goes on. He, he it's funny how in in he, as the book goes on, he gives you all you know you, you see adoption curves on charts and stuff like that. Um, but it's really interesting because what we saw with Brexit, uh, what we saw with the Arab Spring, uh, what we saw with uh, kind of what's going on as uh, these countries are starting to have a bottom up revolt against the EU. It's basically like the public versus the elites, and up until everyone got a computer in their pocket. Uh, and was able to, you know, pay, even for some cases not pay, uh, to get on a network of some kind and, and build these little private groups where you can share information uh, that would often be just blocked by the elite rulers of whatever tribe you're part of uh, or society you're part of. Whatever way you want to slice it, um, there's someone in control up until a couple of years ago. Hmm. Yeah, I and uh, I, mean, I mean, even with like... Even with uh, uh, organization, we'll, we'll just take Black Panthers. I don't know why I'm picking the Black Panthers. Maybe because I'm mad about the Oscar nomination. But um, if you take the Black Panther Party of the United States, um, 
in the old days, uh, it was a very top-down hierarchical structure. Now, uh, there's five different Black Panther units that are all grouped in various social networks, uh, Discord channels, things you can barely search anymore. Hmm. Um, And so you have just like not just societies and governments and banking because we see Bitcoin as a bottom-up revolt against banking. Um, And uh, I'm sure it's other stuff too, but that's one (laughs) of the things it is. Um, So if you look at it like that, even like little of old institutions like like interestingly uh, obscure parties or groups like the Black Panthers, um, they do the same kind of bottom-up revolt, and it's organic. It does. They don't. Even, they just all of a sudden now it's easier to find ten different Facebook groups, you know, two Discord, some like you know Twitter group chat. Um, it's IRC, like they can fork the, as much as they want and become a Black Panther mesh. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of get, the, um, and it's just like a natural. It's a natural cause of like being able to connect, right? And um, this guy, at the end of his book, um, I'll I'll share the picture of the page. He basically calls uh, what's going on right now in France um, because he talks about Macron and uh, he goes, he has, he says about, uh, this is, I'm going to quote him real real quick. Yeah. Um, About Macron, he's like, his instincts too run the temper of the times. He is a centralizer in the centrifugal age, hmm. for example. He has said that he inspires to be a Ju- Jupiter- Jupiterian, uh, <laughs> Jupiterian presidency, um, actually to increase the distance between power and the public. He chose Versailles Palace um, for his first important speech. While the Olympian style may have served Charles de Gaulle well, it's unlikely to be taken seriously on Twitter or Facebook. Hmm. Macron is clearly tempted by the crown of the decaying empire, that is, by the ambition to become the next Angela Merkel. That way, it seems to me, lies perdition. Hmm. And um, this is like, you know, one year before he decided to tax people who live in the in the royal areas of France hmm. to what's probably like his demise. So it's just a really good book. It's really cheap. It's $10 on Kindle, uh, 15 for a beautiful hardback. Yeah. Um, and also, this press has uh, released a couple other very interesting books. Uh, there's that's, four. That's an amazing thing too. I love like little um, small publishers that can really just do passion projects for as long as they can, and 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 oh, allow yeah. people a platform like that. Yeah, I'm actually, actually now that I remember. I'm gonna buy. Uh, I'm buying the that I love, which is uh, stubborn attachments: a vision for a society of free, prosperous individuals. So. When you were saying that uh, Macron quote, uh, or the quote about Macron, and um, you know, talking about you know it possibly not being you know fit for the times today, I was just thinking about uh, over the holidays he he sent out or he did, did some speech or something from some like room <laughs> with like a, a golden desk and like a golden <laughs> chair, or, or the, the, there was just some funny meme about like him mm. and the, uh, the the Queen of England. You right. know, they both like did their like holiday announcements like from like these gold encrusted rooms and so, it was just like you know how, how much more disconnected could the ruling class be with like <laughs> you, you know what, what's going on there so that was just something we have a unique about. opportunity here too because actually hey raf uh you're from the uk but you're in america right now 
No, no, no. I'm, I'm in the UK. Okay. Um, Can you give us some extra kind of UK perspective on some of the things that you're seeing or even that particular instance? Sure. So, I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm aware of um, the effect that news has on me. So I've been re regulating exposure to it quite a lot over the last few years as I've become increasingly aware of its effect on my mindset, the fear that might emerge from um, any inf any information that comes up throughout the day. Um, but yeah, Brexit is a real mess right now. And uh, like wherever you are in the country, no one is happy how it is. And um, I think uh, it, the way it emerged and source of uh, the source of it was just through general dissatisfaction with um, where the establishment is going. There's very clear signs of um, most people are beginning to struggle financially. Um, so I think it's pretty similar to um, the reasons that uh, Trump was elected. Um, in America, though I'm less aware of that, it's just a general dissatisfaction among the population. And the EU is an example of this larger um, authority that we have to um, basically do whatever they say. Um, so right now, the government is kind of in a mess. There's been no progress at all. Do you um, think that so the UK is going to remain a uh, collection of nations on those islands? Uh, so the biggest dispute was the um, deal that was put forward by the Prime Minister most recently is uh, this thing called the backstop. And that's, that's the biggest fear that is emerging um, from the whole Brexit um, ordeal because basically... Uh, so. Northern Ireland and Ireland are separate countries, and Northern Ireland is part of Great Britain. So for us to leave the EU, that would mean that a hard border would need to be put between Northern Ireland and Ireland, where there, you know, 30 years ago, and even now, there's very serious um, rooted problems where, of course, there's dispute and the IRA and... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of concerns there. So there's a lot of fear, particularly people in Ireland, that that will erupt again. And yeah. Um, I, yeah, there's no question that that will happen if there is a hard border um, at that point. Daniel Day Lewis, um, shout out. I just watched uh, In the Name of the Father, like last week. If you haven't you seen watched it. In the Name in the name of the What? In the you Name of the there. Father. Name of the Father. Okay. Right. And that's. Well, it's a Daniel Day-Lewis film from early 90s that talks about the um, interactions between the IRA and the um, England and the – what? who is it? The Glasgow Four or – do you know, Raf? No. No, I don't know that. But what happened is there was a bombing – just to go into some of this – background information about Ireland and Northern Ireland and England, um, you know, from a very far away perspective that I have is that there was a, uh, you know, some group of radicals that were getting violent, uh, the military and there was some kind of military presence there. 
uh, these other guys were kind of hanging out and they got accused of this bombing and then were in prison for 15 years um, and eventually were uh, released to the charges. But there was a lot of um, a lot of political kind of back and forth about that because it 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 derives from hundreds of years of conflict between these nations that have been on these very close islands. Uh, I definitely recommend the movie, but uh, that's, you know, some modern context, but also kind of an, uh, an entertainment spin on the things too. It's a good movie. Definitely worth watching. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Uh, one thing I was, that was on my mind before it left, or sorry, if, if you had something on that note, go ahead. I was going to take it a different tangent. Now I was just uh, I was going to say out loud. Yeah, I thought, I think it's weird to, Who's got sorry, that phone ringing? I think it's weird. It would be interesting. Like, what would the IRA have accomplished in our current age? You know, mm, had they just had kind of, social media. It's kind of like yeah, like if you think about organization structures and yeah, like if you look at like the news, at least American news, because um, I'm not going to foreign news but if you look at uh american news uh how in the last like three or four years uh bottom bottom up we've just been like dissecting it you know like all stories picking apart the details just really like under a microscope you know and uh it makes me i think most people that this stuff play out you wonder like well like what are all these old stories in the 90s and the 80s and 70s and so on that were probably just totally fabricated um and how much do they wield in the direction of a society or country so as you gotta wonder like probably a crazy amount yeah like an insane like it extrapolates like to a probably an insane amount you know and uh you gotta wonder like because I, I typed it out there like it's really ironic you know the uk doing that brexit move when they they nations kind of under their royalty umbrella that kind of want freedom it seems right <laughs> and they don't and, and it may kind of resist it all the time <laughs> it's almost as if like all the countries and territories that were part of the commonwealth that split off over the course of 100 years or so it it's now because of proximity and um you know just how splintered things can be and and again back to the bottoms up concept like it's now reached back to the uk proper to where we're seeing like you know yes the the ira stuff that was happening in the 70s and 80s or even before that um you know that that thread you know has been getting pulled on for a long time and um i, I mean i think like i think the most interesting like i'm sorry i didn't mean to no, no it's, it's fine. Or, okay yeah um i think like the most interesting part or, or the most interesting thing about what's going on in today's society is like two things i think like we're getting this huge or we're at least starting to get this huge contraction in the economy where like you know the credit bubbles are finally starting to turn around like you know like um like eventually like interest rates are going to start going up i think like we're going to start getting a lot more economic stability or instability and then mm -hmm. as a byproduct we're going to start getting more political instability because like the pie is going to start shrinking and whenever the pie starts shrinking everything starts to get more violent and more political but at the same time the people in charge are not going to be able to clamp down on those like um on those narratives that go against them you know 
Well, and China will. On the, on the, China's, yeah. China's going to lead the, the uh, lay a blueprint for that. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, I think any sort of dissenting opinion is is going to get squashed there because yeah. like, well, the war is coming. But, you know. Yeah. So I, I think it might be valuable for, to make a differentiation here, but um, the experimentation with ideas and information that can be made with the individual. Um, so obviously, the internet is a massive sort of the example of that. You know, we can go to all these Reddit, Twitter threads anywhere. There's there's uh, very little scarcity to um, places that people can connect and share and build upon and create with that sort of shared values and ideas. Uh, but these people are all living within these societies that we're talking about. And sort of we're moving at an unsustainable rate. And I'm, I'd definitely be interested to hear what you guys think about sort of how the next 10 or 20 years, certainly say 10 years, is sort of heading with the state that we're in economically. Mm. Like, obviously, that's Something. heading to an ugly place right now. But so, um, I... To build off of that... everyone... No, yeah, sure. go, go ahead, or if you know if you have other things, but well, I, I want to speak to what you just said specifically. So what mm-hmm. I think that's going to happen, uh, and this is something that... I live by Chicago, right? And... You have you have the city, you have the suburbs, and then you have what's referred to as greater Chicagoland. And greater Chicagoland reaches across like four states, right? So you have basically this economic zone that reaches all the way up into Wisconsin by Milwaukee. It reaches deeply into Illinois. And you could make the argument that it reaches all the way down to Springfield in Illinois. Uh, then it, it kind of crosses over into Indiana where I live and then also a little bit of Michigan as well. So it, and it has to do with transportation. It has to do with time zones. It has to do with culture. It has to do with economics. And that is maybe the type of thinking and the model uh, that you would have seen in antiquity regarding like a city state. So you start to see this this zone that is Chicago minded, but they may be from Michigan or from Wisconsin or from Indiana. And, uh, they are not, they do not identify with, uh, the culture of their state as much as they do the culture of Chicago. And that has to do with sports and broadcasting in terms of radio, uh, licensing and television licensing of the spectrum, the, and the, the bandwidth in the air and where it has geographic, um, uh, authority. Can you expand on that? I guess I, you can ask me on the, uh... on which part? Uh, I, well, just on that last bit about about how the how the how the airspace mm. the airway space is um, directly correlated. I mean, I mean, I see what you're talking about. Okay, how, so have you ever you looked know, at a map one. of like the uh, radio broadcasting licenses? No, I guess well, take, not. Take uh, a look. Be a good thing to Google. To yeah, definitely that, take like, a look and search that. License map. Yeah, radio FCC radio licensing or television licensing maps, and you'll see that they're their broadcasting ranges are mapped out right and the uh, obviously the state lines are they can't stop radio waves okay so yeah like you have the lake right there so you know it basically there is southwest michigan it blows my mind when i go up there 
because they're all Cubs fans. <laughs> oh, hey, Randy, what's going on? Just saw you pop into the uh, into the Periscope. Wish you were on the Discord with us. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I see around here. And I think that, you know, uh, when we talk about New York City's tri-state area, you see the same sort of thing because you've got New Jersey and you've got Connecticut and you've got New York. And then you have a little piece of Massachusetts that kind of still gets fed by some of that culture as well. And, uh, you know, I, I'm maybe struggling to think of a, another area that has as much uh as much overlap as those, maybe Washington DC because yeah, it's DC DC is an interesting area. Right, because it's carved out of Maryland, but it butts right up against Virginia. Um trying to think. You know, in a sense kind of Philly, but not so much. Um just because of the proximity to New York. But Boston also has a similar kind of thing because it butts up against uh, New Hampshire and Maine is not far away and Rhode Island is right there and actually Eastern Connecticut, uh, you know, they're pretty dialed in with Boston compared to New York and it's because it's relatively equidistant. So, no, that's a pretty astute observation and and I'm with you on all that. And those probably are, Chicago and the tri-state area probably are the best examples that, that, that I can come up with also that um, but so given that that's a that's a good observation about the current now today uh, how do you see that being relevant towards where we're going in the future do you see further mm. so, collectivization around or uh, kind of the creation of new hubs like that where or, I was gonna kind of- go with that is we start to see balkanization right mm-hmm. so uh, anybody familiar with the end of the Soviet Union and the country known as Yugoslavia, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have a Yugoslavia anymore. We have the handful of countries that were, uh, that exist now that were made up of the area that was formerly Yugoslavia. Uh, and I think that, um, people are going to continue to desire autonomy. And we see mm-hmm. that even at a state level, you know, honestly, uh, what is West Virginia? What is, uh, what is the state of Jefferson? If anybody has ever looked that up on Wikipedia, I suggest you go take a look at uh, just search state of Jefferson or territory of Jefferson. And you'll see that this this idea of um, dividing regions, uh, maybe economically, maybe ideologically, and maybe those things have a lot of overlap, but also we see the same conversation happening in California over the last couple of years where there's been talks about breaking California into a collection of states too. Mm-hmm. So that right. I, I think that, I think that that is think- potential, you know, it has potential. And I think it's better if you base it on the economics than if you base it on fake map lines, but go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like those conversations about splitting those conversations about just like, um, you know, people kind of trying to like take individual sovereignty or state sovereignty back. So I think that that'll just be a byproduct of like, you know, credit securities and like debt securities and like the economy as a whole just kind of contracting. You know, it's like, like I said earlier, it's like whenever the pie starts shrinking, it's like everyone tries to consolidate, you know, what they have. Everyone tries to like, you know, um, take either a bigger share of the pie or just like, you know, hold on to their already existing pie out of fear. Yeah, and and there is kind of the notion that, like, you know, as arbitrary as state lines may seem with all these, like, new modern ways of thinking about societies, 
you know, established territory lines are lindy as fuck, you know? So, so, so there is kind of like, you know, a, a, a thing that's kind of hard to, hard to top with that. Um, sort of on the same note, I don't know if you guys saw, I had kind of went viral in, in sort of a different sphere, but, um, I had that post with, um, the U.S. states reimagined based on commuter data. Mm. I don't know if any of you guys saw that map, but it was like a map of kind of the United States, like reorganized as like 40 different kind of collectives or territories, but it was based on, uh, the, the, there was some pretty interesting research. I, that was just kind of the coolest image I pulled off the paper. Mm. Um, but it was, it, but it was anyways talking about, you know, it, essentially like re, re, re deciding the territory based on you know where people commute to and from although it, it, it is worth pointing out i think uh, it was actually luke uh jr the bitcoin core developer that pointed this out on the thread um but you know there, there is a lot of people that play um you know tax arbitrage and you know live across you know state lines and work in another state right. and so some of this commuter data is is biased by the fact that it's you know operating atop the existing you know state line structures. Right. So I don't I don't know that you know really would hold true, or you know we we may reorganize shortly after this sort of rearrangement if something like that were to occur. But right. no, it, it it is interesting to think about um, kind of kind of the future of organization. So when you were talking about balkanization, though. Uh, Michael, were, were you were you saying that? I mean, I see how that could happen to like a bigger place like California splitting into three. You know, that seems you know potentially feasible. Um, were you seeing that balkanization is something that would happen within the kind of clustered examples you had earlier, like the Chicago, Greater Chicago area balkanizing, um, or the tri-states balkanizing, or do you think they will increasingly centralize where other things will balkanize? So let's let's think of these. Let's make the distinction between these physical areas and these ideological areas, right? So the, the, we can have both. I don't know how to, to reconcile um, the geographic models that we have have set in motion for hundreds of years, but I do think that the ideological maps of our country or economic regions or just, you know, the culture of say Chicagoland where I live, um, that I don't think it, I don't think that people care too much about the on the ground physical elements, because even if you do say, say you, you know, you love deep dish pizza or something or, and you like the Cubs and uh, I don't know some other super Chicago stuff or whatever. Like ultimately, like you can enjoy all of those things or identify with all those things, and you don't really have to even live in Chicago or part or be near Chicago to participate in the culture or even to participate in um the conversations. You know, and we're seeing that on a political level when. Uh, it's, way, it's way less fun, though. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Just um, want to point out, right? It's better. It's better to be there, right? Well, the, you know, that's that's an eye of the beholder. But I think that we see that there's money pouring into these elections from different places that, that are from contributors that do not live in that area, and uh, it they're they're participating in in that that political action. Uh, purely ideologically they don't have a, a a dog in that race you know uh, as far as like the pennsylvania 
election that was happening last year, there was a lot of money flowing into Pennsylvania that wasn't from Pennsylvania. Now, do you think that's because of, you know, like Pennsylvania fans living elsewhere pouring money in? Or do you think that was more like, you know, large scale, you know, nationwide uh, that's, political that's strategy, a little and, bit of both. You know, just like you know, money going out of DC for everything. Yeah, uh, but no, but no, you, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, it's definitely more possible. And another, you know, more existent example that's been around for a while is, you know, uh, people continuing to contribute, or you know, like to alumni organizations for the college they went to. Mm. You know, it's like my, my, my dad still supports a ton of things at you know the college he went to. And, you know, we're, we're states away, and he hasn't even been to that state in decades. And, you know, has, has no skin in the game there. Other, that's just you know, he's, he's a member of the alumni thing, and that's kind of what that's that's part of his game. But um, no, you, you're definitely seeing that more. So you can have sort of like an expansion of what it means to be. I mean, to be like a sovereign member of an. Or, or, okay, so so just to take this on like a total extreme edge case, like the urban arson level model of the future where you know we're, we're going to dissolve into like a bunch of nation states where corporations hey, are going to more in. sovereignty and you know you could have something like you know if you're like a sovereign member of mcdonald's you know you could you, you have safety and sovereignty at any mcdonald's across the planet you, you know that you walk into or you could start to have like kind of way, new ways of like representing and distributing sort of things where you know maybe historically the, Just the a quick. biggest Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, why don't you pop into Discord with us, Phil? You know? <laughs> uh Phil is was on uh was on the the Periscope broadcast for a second. I okay, was just okay. like, why don't you come in here? <laughs> yeah. Ideally. Ideally. Um right. But no, no, I I mean I think there there there's a lot of uh, kind of new ideas being tested and, and one of them is that you know you could have the organization of a community of a, of a political consensus of a society that, you know, not only like meets based on interests, but, but, um, you know, like we're talking about like networking through Twitter versus Facebook, but, you know, in the same way that you, you, you could also then have something where, well, I don't know. I'm just trying to think about where this goes long-term where, you know, historically it's been, you know, the biggest territory holders and, you know, identities and organizations and sovereignties and nations and collectives of societies. We're all kind of going, you know, bottom down or, or top down, you know, from this sort of bigger <laughs> regional control. But, you know, now that we're moving, you know, in, into kind of this future digital ecosystem, I mean, probably, you know, the United States isn't going to fall anytime soon. Who knows what happens with the EU? But, you know, probably the main, you know, organizations are going to still continue to exist. But I think you'll have like kind of new fractional emergences of culture and, um, I don't know. Did you guys ever read I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but it was on like a really prominent sports blog and it was like the the title was something like football in the year 2150 or something like that. Hmm. And it was this, it was this really crazy. Like it was like an interactive, I'll, I'll find the link and throw this up here um, in a moment, but it was like a 20 part interactive story you could go through and you had, you know, real long pages to scroll down and part would be text and part would be audio and video. But it was this kind of crazy idea of like, so like, what is football? And it was kind of like they were painting this future where, you know, humans have long since like, uh, you know, gone into space and, you know, AIs regulate control most things and just the world's an entirely different ball game. Um, but football had still sort of survived in some fashion but the rules had totally changed where instead of like, you know, trying to get it down, 
you know, get the ball across the, you know, arena, you know, it was something like there were these handful of footballs like scattered out across the planet. And the goal was something to like get a football from like Wyoming down to Mexico or hmm. something like that. It was like this new team sport and games could last for years. And it was like just this, this whole super evolution of like an idea. But That's I was awesome. just thinking about, um, yeah, no, it, it was a really cool story. I'll find this and link y'all on this. There, everybody should check it out. You know, it, it was on like a sports blog, and I'm not really like a sports guy myself, but I just found it through some sci-fi channel. Um, but it did just kind of give me me get me thinking about like, you know, there. I, th- I think a lot of these institutions that are like failing and having trouble right now. I think the easy answer is to assume that they're gonna, you know, go by the wayside in this new digital frontier. But I think really a lot of these things are gonna prove to be you know, very Lindy and, you know, they're, they're, they're going to change their form and you know, not the football is necessarily going to become football as envisioned in that way. But just when you were talking about Cubs fans, you know, not having to, you know, be in, you, you can be in San Francisco and, and, you know, still get deep dish pizza and still be a Cubs fan. Right. And, um, you know, so, so, so the very nature of what these groups, these organizations, these, per, these things themselves, you know, what they even mean, you know, is subject to change. And um, so that's, a really good point, and I want to go back to something that you had said just a couple of minutes ago. So, just just right now with this broadcast, right? So, and this is for people listening, but also just to monitor ourselves here while we're doing this. So, in Discord, you know, we have we have side chat occurring on Discord amongst ourselves, right? And then we obviously have this conversation, which is being broadcast over to Periscope, right? And we've got <laughs> we got Phil uh, <laughs> talking smack about the Cubs, which is fantastic as a White Sox fan. And also, that's also true. Yeah, deep dish outside of Chicago is not as good. But then you also have people from Chicago who are like, deep dish isn't Chicago pizza, but it doesn't matter. It's really good. Just enjoy the food. Um so then we have the conversation going on on Periscope as well, where we have Phil chiming in with some things and some other people have dropped some comments there. And then additionally, to in addition to that, we have Twitter, where we've had some engagement because we've shared the post over there and uh, have been kicking comments around on, on that public space, too. So there's this entire tapestry of media that is creating um, – this experience for us, our, our personal experience here today together is extremely robust. Uh, and, and I hope that, you know, people listening have enjoyed what's, uh, you know, happening as far as the broadcast goes, but in terms of our experience here as participants in creating this, it's very deep, you know, the, in, not only in terms of the technology, but also the layers of information and what we have exposure to or what we are exposing each other to inside of this conversation on Twitter and on Periscope, in our voices and on Discord as well. So there's like four facets to this uh, experience, this broadcast experience. I mean, I think like that's just um, that's like the basis behind consensus. I'm actually I'm sort of like starting my own YouTube video or YouTube channel on the side, mm-hmm. and one of my first videos is going to be on consensus and how like not just consensus in terms of like network consensus for like Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, but just like social sort of consensus and like the basis behind that is just like you can create these like levels of um, 
how do I explain it? You can create these like levels of detail, these levels of abstraction over conversation. If you know, you have enough mutual understanding with that person, you know, you have enough um, shared interests, you know, and you gather enough people together and then you could have like a, a rolling consensus of dialogue of information through like Twitter right. and stuff like that. And you can get really, really deep with this stuff. You can get really deep ideas going and really deep, you know, I, I don't want to say memes. I guess memes is a good word. Um, you can get really sort of um, levels of meaning just through that those like consensus mechanisms that are kind of emerging on Twitter. Right. Yeah, Could you uh, link us to that? What's up? Colty, could you uh, link us at uh, oh, the YouTube channel? So I haven't, I'm still making the first video. I haven't really started yet, but I'll, I'll oh, post okay, it okay, on, okay. on my Twitter when I'm done with it. Um, right now, I'm just kind of developing the script for it. So this conversation is really useful, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, cool. I think there's a lot to be said about um, the benefit in... <clears throat> I don't know, kind of like what we're doing here is, is, you know, are we putting out a stream for, you know, people in this swarm to follow around with and to learn our ideas? Or are we doing this to promote, you know, our own idea creation for ourselves? And, you know, oh, there, there is a lot everything. of overlap there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's like um, a good reason to encourage and hopefully, you know, we can do these things more often and with more people. And, you know, that that's kind of a part of the encouragement of this, is, you know, even if you don't have your ideas, you know, totally put together mm-hmm. and ready to definitely you know, that definitely presentation that. you know th- this this is like getting actually like you know and learning as you're doing you know learning you know on the fly actually like having some you know i don't want to overuse the word skin in the game but you know just kind of like being in the moment and learning as you're going um you know really is kind of the best way to i learned the most with, through, with almost anything yeah i learned the most through dialogue like i always learn the most through conversation mm-hmm. or just through like mm-hmm. i think that's why i like twitter so much because twitter is kind of like that you know it's like a it's like an endless conversation that we're having with each other. Yeah, definitely that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing too. So, you know, we, we have collectively popped into Periscope, but just to give you guys a heads up, and I'm not trying to act as if it's anything particularly meaningful or indicative, but there have been 142 total viewers. So it, it, no matter how long they've stuck around for or if they've participated or not, the... Um, yeah, we can we can increase the volume a little bit. I can turn it up for you here. Uh, Nick was just asking about the volume being turned up, so I'm going to turn that up a little bit for him. Got you guys. Got you. I'll turn the volume up even more for you. Cool. And um, I'll post this. I just posted this in the uh, in the Discord. Um, for some reason. <clears throat> On my loading of the Periscope, it says chat's unavailable, so I'll find a way to like share or respond to link. But then mm. that story I was just talking about, I shared it in the Discord. For anyone that's watching on the Periscope, I'll reply to the uh, main Twitter post with it. But it was from SB Nation, and the story was called 17776, and it was like 17776. Volume better? Um, on the broadcast yeah, side? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I still said very nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I do recommend everyone go check it out out the thing because it was a it, it's like a fun 25 part like interactive story it's very multimedia you know engages you know does does a bunch of weird stuff to your browser as you're kind of scrolling through it um and, and actually i think it was it you know i was talking about how it was you know changing the game of the football and people running across states but really the kind of interesting thing about the story was like it was being told from the perspective of these like two satellites that had been floating around watching this game of football being played you know for like the last thousand years or something like that mm-hmm. and it was it was, it was told kind of a very weird 
uh, narrator type perspective. So I'll drop that in a link somewhere. On that Twitter. had me thinking something too. Um, gosh, I, I was thinking about it before when you first mentioned that, and uh, I wish I could remember what it was. Maybe it'll come back to me. But yeah, I, I liked that that example that you gave. There was something else I can't remember right now, but it, hopefully it'll it'll pop back up in my mind. Yeah. All right. Well, any, anything else on that topic? Any other topics to jump through, or where, where are we at right now, guys? Yeah, I would say you know any anything anybody wants to kind of address or go into, you know, feel free. We've been going for an hour and a half plus, uh, so I'm I am more than happy to keep going with you guys. I don't want to make you feel any sort of way. Uh, you know, I'm perfectly fine with uh, what we're doing. I like hanging out with you guys. I've been thinking a lot about consensus, um, but I also am thinking a lot about, because I think it's kind of tangential. Um, can we talk about like entanglement? Yeah. Talk about anything like, you want. I don't know. I, entanglement's really cool. And I think it really, I really think it ties into consensus. And uh, I want to see like, I want to try to learn how the two are sort of interrelated. Because I think there is definitely some connection between like the idea of consensus and the idea of um, entanglement. I don't know. So how are you applying that? I mean, I just think like there's, again, this is like kind of muddy waters for me. Um, But I I just think like entanglement um, is kind of like a driver of consensus. It's like if you can get two sort of brains sort of like oriented in a very similar way, like there's, you could almost like develop entanglement between those two brains. And I think like that's kind of like a main driver of consensus. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but like, I don't know. Like, it's just something I've been thinking about. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. I, I, I agree with you in terms of the entanglement and consensus piece. Like, I think, I mean, like, I some think, people I, in the swarm... Yeah, sorry, Alex. Yeah. Well, I was just, just going to say, like, I was going to talk about, you know, the, the dynamics of a swarm and, uh, and, and just how things kind of naturally, organically happen um, uh, in many situations. The idea of twins... Uh, being able right. to know about each other across distances or, like, feel pain between the other two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's what I'm saying. Like, there seems to be, like, some way to induce almost, like, <laughs> I don't want to say, like, telepathy, but, like, something along those lines, mm. if you can well, sort of, like, align people along the same Everybody line, crosses a goal like, line. ideologically or just, like, what's up? But, like, if, uh, if we... Uh, uh, entanglement is, like, uh, if you... On a science on a general science level, if you split, um, uh, like, uh, if you split like a particle or something across, uh, like a beam, they will kind of be parallel to each other and they call that entanglement. I might be, might be missing that, but that's kind of correct. And basically like, uh, I think it's interesting in the, in the twins thing because they kind of come from the same point. They come from, you know, the womb and then they get split. You know, and uh, their entanglement remains. Um, because I, I think on a on like the on like the level of like lasers and light lights and stuff, like entanglement is when two particles are like split and they kind of like like they go in parallel with each other or something like that. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, so you can have like two particles that are tangled. And then, I mean, this is the thing that um, Einstein called spooky action at a distance. So you could have these particles that are entangled, you know, at, at any separation of space and time. And, 
you know, you push an effect on one, and the equivalent effect occurs instantaneously on, on the other. And it, and it kind of violates the speed of light principle as well, in theory. Um, and, you know, we don't have, like, real good, like, testable examples of, like, doing this on macro objects and, like, you know, moving a basketball and making another basketball in China move or something like that. But I do think there is kind of an innate um, – well, I, I think that fundamental, like – property of entanglement itself is is something that's been around since the very start of the universe and i kind of a thought a theory i'm i'm building towards is something to the effect of so even if we didn't have like mechanisms that were like innately adapted for quantum communication you know between human to human or bird to bird or fish to fish or whatever Mm. um we've all still been like having sort of quantum collisions happening you know with with like our observations ourselves. i mean i think there's there's something to be said about like what an observation is what it is to like be present in a moment and take in information and i and i kind of see that not just as like a resting state but actually as like an exerting force that you're sort of pushing out on the universe with your observations. And so I think, you know, that's been happening back and forth between all these organisms throughout all of, you know, life's history. Um, And even if, you know, we weren't explicitly trying to do a quantum entanglement, I think that we've naturally sort of evolved along pathways that were most conducive for that kind of information, um, kind of paths of least resistance type thinking. Um, But there, there, there was some interesting study. I've got to find this throw this in the chat box if I can find it, but an interesting study I read about a year ago that was talking about how something in how birds connect with each other, or this, I guess this, this was like a theory, like an early theory on um, animal magnetism and how birds migrate together and how they sync up, but something, something was being proposed by this one guy that was essentially saying, you know, there's some level of this uh, synergy or synchronization that's occurring that, you know, we can't explain through traditional mechanics, uh, if you put it through a quantum mechanical lens, you know, you can start to understand how, how some of these things could be entangled and how there could be like a fundamental quantum entanglement relationship going on just between particles and, you know, micro quantum things. Um, but that, you know, we're, we're being barraged with these things, you know, all happening, you know, you know, even as we're doing stuff in the physical space, stuff is happening in the quantum realm as well. And so I think it's like a natural extension to think that, you know, the biological evolutions that we've undertaken the last, you know, several millions of years uh, would also sort of run parallel to, like, maximizing or optimizing along quantum information channels because that would just be, you know, where the feedback tends to be the tightest, where you would have the most synergies, where you would have the most. I mean, it's hard to even think about what, like, a synergy or a synchronization would be fish to fish. You know, it's easier to talk as humans. We have these complex, you know, uh, eigenstate like things with our consciousness and our, our thoughts and we can do group thinking and you know who's who's to say what it really looked like at an er- earlier level but i do i do think to some degree yeah. that that like this quantum information exchange is a fundamental property that's like is underlying all things and you know the more we understand this the more we're going to start to see that our biological adaptations are actually you know evolving along the same lines and are maximizing and optimizing quantum information channels even if we didn't intend it to we don't know it to and we might not fully explain it for another 200 years uh, you know i think that's just kind of like a path of least resistance where everything would be optimizing optimizing towards inevitably really interesting so you think it's just like an immersion thing but it's just kind of everything's trending towards sort of sort, sort of yeah and and uh, you know we're, we're now at a point 
in our evolution where we can start thinking about like you know could could thoughts get entangled and, and you know you know it's hard, it's hard to entangle like macro collections of objects and to do you know controlled entanglement experiments in labs but you know i do think there's something to that effect going on you know in in all human communication i think there's like quantum interactions happening you know in and at every step throughout the process of whether it's just getting to know someone awkwardly or picking up on pheromones or hormones or something you know below the conscious level of, of uh, detection and then there's there's the even you know this is more subjective and you know harder to quantify but then there's the whole realm of the experience of you know people undergoing <laughs> spiritual religious practices or ingesting psychedelic substances and having group mind phenomena that's you know Definitely. hard to hard to explain within any traditional you know mechanism of uh, or you know any you know traditional understanding of both physics and of theory of mind so materialist we, well, notions of yeah. consciousness you know yeah yeah so so I mean I, I don't really this is kind of working towards but um, seems to be sort of in line with uh, whatever we were saying just before this entanglement I mean it's it, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that, like, I mean, our brains are a byproduct of, of uh, you know, like, things that are on the nanoscale. It's like, you know, like, the structures in our brains, like, the neurons in our brains are definitely affected by quantum effects. So it's like, it makes sense that the outputs, like, what we experience is also kind of um, a byproduct of quantum physics. If that makes sense. Now, have any of y'all uh, read anything about quantum effects emerging within the mind via microtubules? Hmm. Any, anyone heard so. anything to that effect? Um, there's a really good book that came out in, I think, the 90s uh, from Sir Roger Penrose, and he was working with an anesthesiologist who I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, the, the book is called The Emperor's New Mind, and I, I know I've, uh, I've recommended oh, yeah, it to yeah, a yeah. handful of you Actually, um, yes. over, over the time. But yeah, it, it, I mean, so his basic theory, and um, you know, he was looking to explain, you know, Penrose is a you know, theoretical physicist, but he was looking to explain consciousness within some sort of unification of, uh, you know, general relativity, special relativity, and quantum mechanics. And then I think it was the anesthesiologist who came in with this notion of, you, you know, we knew the neurons are probably not getting entangled because they're just macro objects. Neurons are pretty big, you know, on, on the quantum scale of things. But yeah. there were these, like, microtubules that existed within, I guess, I, I, I took some time in neuroscience and my neuroanatomy is failing me right now here. So I can't really explain and articulate where the microtubule comes into play, you know, within the neuron. Um, but, but anyways, they kind of posited this theory and it's, it's a, you know, like late nineties book. It's not like cutting edge, like new science stuff. It was like a, you know, maybe published 2001 or 95 or something like that. Um, but it, but it put forth, you know, kind of this bigger theory that, you know, we, we do actually have, you know, structures in our brain that are so small that they could technically be operating under like a quantum level and that, that you know, uh, we've been doing quantum entanglements without even knowing it, you know, all throughout right. evolution. No doubt And about we've that. been optimizing these little biological things. So, um, I mean, that, 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 that's a really broad concept, a lot of, you know, very vague ideas approaching it. So it's not building like, off really of that, well though. put together thesis, but, you, but yeah, I, I do think there's something there. Have you done any Oliver Sacks? Um, not, not, I know I've read something of his, um, cause I remember, I remember, um, I mean, I remember when he passed, he passed away just what, three or four years ago or something like that. Um, um I think, I think that's true. Yeah. 2015. It looks like, um, 
but yeah, he has some I'm, really I'm great stuff. I'm struggling to remember what I've read is, but I know I I don't know if I've read like any of his research, but I feel like I've read at least one of his books, but I'm I'm blanking on which one it was right Musicophilia, now. Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain is where I got introduced to him, I think. Okay. Um but that is um that's I mean just personally is an interesting one for me because of the overlap of music and and how the mind operates but he has just a, a ton of great stuff uh he's a neurologist um a lot of good stuff definitely recommend checking out anything yeah I think I can I think I um I came across him through I think it was called like the man who mistook his wife for a hat mm-hmm. or something like that yeah. And it was like a collection of like a few different stories about, you know, people that had, I think this is when he was like covering Parkinson's and stuff like that. But, um, what, what was the name of the book that you said? It was something about audio that put you onto him. Musicophilia. Musicophilia. I've heard of that before. So somebody recommended that to me. I think I had a, a neuro professor in college who was, um, a synesthesia or had synesthesia, uh, real prominently. And, and I did kind of like, this was like a, not not real main main course class. This is kind of like a fun you know uh, like lecture series side side credit thing, and um, and it was kind of like a whole a whole dive into uh, you know sensory perception overlap and you know how that emerges within consciousness. And I think she actually recommended that to me because she had we had a big component on like uh, you know the audio end of sensory overlap within synesthesia. And uh, I mean I, I don't know how much you guys know about that phenomenon I get it but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no i i definitely like, i have myself to some degree and i actually have kind of a uh and it only it only pops up like probably like once a month or something like that well so, so, so i, I really, have i don't really know how to explain it no <laughs> no it, i don't have any story yeah no I, I i get that i um i haven't really seen very many or i haven't dove in, into this issue like nearly well enough but i really think that it's a phenomenon that i mean some people just have it and it's innate and you know they they think Wednesday and they smell something and they see the color green and it's just, you know, a a prominent, strong connection. But I think it is something that can be trained to some extent and you can start, I mean, because I definitely, like I didn't have anything like that as a kid. Um, And then as I was kind of like late teens, young adults, uh, I started getting into Eastern philosophy and uh, meditation, yoga, Tai Chi and all that stuff. And, And a lot of my practice in that was focused on like, you know, visualizing this or visualizing this type of energy or whatever. And, and I feel like to, to, to a certain extent, like I don't believe in, you know, the, the cut and dry chakra model, so to say. Um, but uh, I, I do think you can like train kind of a perception and, and, a, and like an ability to have like sensory amplification over certain concepts. So, you know, I, like I almost like I, like I think in vivid color now, like I see my thought forms and my structures and based on, you know, what they're pulling from or sourcing from or what they're driving at, or, you know, there's a multitude of like dynamics here, you know, but, but they, they occur as different colored structures to me. Um, that's definitely something that, you know, wasn't innate and wasn't normal for me, but it was just kind of like a curious phenomena that I kind of started introducing through visualization. And then after a number of years, it's just kind of become like an innate, you know, background skill. task. Uh, yeah, yeah, skill, skill exactly. A and, layer and I think of your perception. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I, and I think there's a lot of things like that. That's just there's a lot of things like that where you know our, our brain is expanding our consciousness. Like, you know, we're obviously expanding our consciousness, but like that's 
actually having like direct physical changes and, and, you know, alterations to the, to the physical structure of the brain itself. And, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that I, I hope to see in my, in, in my life, you know, more of a social acceptance towards the idea that like, you know, our brains are not just what they are, you know, we, they can be much more, we can fundamentally change them. They're far more plastic than we imagine. You know, I, I think a lot of people sort of have this notion of like, you know, you know, one, you know, a lot of people don't even believe in, you know, any of these topics with entanglement that we've discussed, you know, they would say that's parapsychic or pseudoscience <laughs> or, you know, whatever. So they, they would disregard that. And then, um, you know, beyond that also, uh, oh, I had another good point that I was going to, going to latch in there, but, um, it, 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 oh, oh, and, and a lot of people just kind of have this notion of like, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and people feel like, you know, like, like, like it's so depressing to me. And somebody that's like i mean hell even people my age i'm 25 you know i'm, I'm just kind of getting into what i feel is like the kind of the first strides of my like you know, true adult life um but i've got friends my age and then but, but especially you know you know people that are that are you know 35 45 you know i encounter a lot of people who feel like uh you know you stop learning and growing after like 21 or 25 or so totally and untrue. i know a lot of, a lot of people untrue. like yeah it's so untrue and i mean <laughs> Like, like, I don't even need to, like, begin to prove that. Like, what they're I, really I know, saying is I they know. don't want to continue learning anymore. They're done. You know, that's what they're I, really mean. You know, in some I think it is, like, just, like, deception like that. I think in many cases, people just actually believe it. They really just think that, like, you know, you know, they've been on, like, a pretty routine lifestyle. And so not very much has changed over the last couple decades. And they've kind of settled into routines. And I get it. It's comfortable. And you're very. It comes, it comes down to structure that's been provided for them, you know. If but the, also maybe that like they produce people have had to. Well, yeah, definitely. Largely, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of people kind of just they they are productions of their environments, right? And so to kind of change the pattern really requires some type of drastic, um, you know, change of mind. Like something has something is required that really pushes you in a different direction in my mind. Yeah, it's like you've either got a receptiveness towards, you know, like being open-minded, radical change, and if you weren't raised with that, you know, mindset or that ability for whatever reason, then yeah, it usually requires some sort of like traumatic life event or, you know, something to just rock the whole deck of cards to, you know, even yeah. approach considering things like that. But yeah, I think that, that that's a big problem. I mean, alongside, you know, we've talked at length about this you know, various other places, but, you know, there's the whole idea of people getting caught into, like, group think and group feel and, you know, just identifying with, like, a bigger, you know, it, it, I mean, there's different tangents we could take sort of along that, along that route, but um, I think that, that sort of plays back into this as well, so. Um, I mean, I think, like, it's an information problem. I think, like, if you're old and you're just, like, watching cable news or something like that, and I think, like, the generation gap primarily is just between, like, people who are consuming internet culture versus people who are consuming just, like, mainstream cable so, culture. Oh, yeah. like, it's it's completely different data sets. Here's a also, good question. Fluid, I'm, I'm sorry for cutting you off earlier. My headphones – I'm sorry for talking over you earlier. My headphones cut out. And it's all good, but I want to toss this oh, in because yeah. we got a question from, uh, from Periscope from uh, Alk My Cult. So he says, do you guys yeah. think we're doomed as civilization? And my reply – on Periscope was that I think culture always emerges. And that was pretty in line with what you were talking about, Jordan, um, that at the same time. But I think that like 
there's something I'm reading right now, a uh, book, Decline of the West. And one of the points that he makes inside of that book is that civilization is is the implication that culture has already ceased. Um, that civilization is the decline, not the collapse or the, the doom or something like that, but, but that it is when you have solidified uh, or perhaps when your culture has calcified and be, begins to get uh, relativistic and begins to fragment into all of these variants, that that is kind of the end of that culture. And civilization, uh, which goes hand in hand with imperial um, mechanisms, that as soon as you begin to kind of trade off some of the things that happen there with an, an imperial civilization, that you have already compromised your culture. <coughs> That's interesting. Now, that, that leads me to think... Um... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's like the four Klykos or Klykos. Klykos, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely yeah, in yeah, line yeah. with that for sure. Yeah, yeah, where I'm just thinking and, – and then there's the even crazier instances of that where it's like um, I think, uh, Steve Bannon. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen any of his like political documentaries. I don't mean – you know, even if you don't agree with him politically um, and you know what he's trying to do with the GOP and what he mm. did with Trump. You know, regardless of all that, he's he's an incredibly, incredibly well-educated man, and really understands sure culture and cultural changes and how. Uh, I mean, the man's the man's incredibly brilliant. Gets his dudes there, but he's very big, and I think he's even got a movie maybe titled "The Fourth Turning" or something like that. But you know, you know, he very much you know believes in this kind of idea of like you know cycles matter, societies go through stages, and it's not like we're going to have like a democracy that lasts 500 years it's like now we're gonna have democracy and then you know collapse into something and then the rise of like a new monarchy and then mm -hmm. oligarchy and then democracy again and mm -hmm. kind of this whole notion of of you know structures themselves or the, the the process of going through these structural uh changes themselves is like a cyclical process and right you know, maybe there isn't really like an end organization, but rather there's like an end pattern. And that there's fractals of that also that go down and up um, geographically. I, mean, well. I think a lot of it is um, it's it's greed. It's driven by greed and envy too. I mean, like a lot of these um, cycles are sort of caused by debt, or they're caused by just like people taking on more than they can handle, or just like people at the top, you know, messing up the like governmental or. Um, you know, the balance economic of things. structures. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, hold on. I'm gonna move to a quieter spot. I'm a, no, it was all good. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of Scott Adams. Like, um, he says something that, a long time ago where he's like, uh, it was an offhand comment. He's like, you know, history doesn't have to repeat. You know, and then uh, the last year he was talking about how it's it's uh, he thinks that we're headed into like a new paradigm of um, economic reality. Um, and he's just talking about, and, uh, but I kind of, I kind of find those two points interesting where, uh, as I, I kind of don't think history repeats itself the way like most people say it does. Um, and just like how a while ago we were talking about what happens with everyone getting a, you know, an iPhone and how the, uh, information hierarchy kind of like really has 
its head uh, with the bottom-up uh, masses having access to all this stuff. Um, I think we're headed to something different. Um, I don't think there's a collapse. Uh, in, I mean, there might be collapse of norms, I guess. Um, but I don't think, at least in the United States, we're headed mm. for any kind of like social collapse. I think um, uh, the, the world uh, is... And again, there might, there might be some bad things that happen, like, you know, China's you know, doing lots of bad things right now. Um, but we're headed, I think, in a, in a whole, like, a, uh, just with, uh, I hate using the, you know, word technology to kind of, like, umbrella everything. But uh, we've only had uh, a smartphone 11 years now. Right. Um, and uh, people talk about how Obama was the, uh, the, nominee, the nominee who really mind and hit that social media, uh, you know, faucet, that technological faucet, um, uh, we find out that that really wasn't the case, you know, um, the, the right, the, uh, right, right side of the country really kind of tapped into that in a different, I think more dramatic way than they did in 08. And, uh, uh quick shout out. We got James just popped into the chat as well. So say hi to him. If you want to, uh, turn your mic on and chime in. You're more than welcome to. But, um, hey, everybody. Hey, I was coming? just going to wait for, the, uh, for a natural oh, right. <laughs> But that's just my answer to the question. I, I don't think it's the way I think of, you know, we're going to be starving and killing each other for, for bullets and water. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I think we're headed to something a little, a little different because I don't, I don't think history repeats itself. I, I also okay. think that we're so. probably headed towards deeper diversification um, and not like a, a collapse so much i would probably put it more in line with um what we see on um what is that movie that that series of movies that jennifer lawrence did um the hunger games hunger games <laughs> yeah i think of it more like that um in the sense that like uh, I, I think you're right about that you know that it's just that, well, like we're splitting and, and going further off and like uh, you know, if, if you are wealthy and connected, then, you know, it's going to be very difficult to unseat that. Um, if you aren't, you know, there's going to be some different mechanisms to kind of come up out of, um, underclass, but I, I don't know that the notion of middle class is, um, perhaps middle class is an unsustainable notion on a global level. You know, perhaps middle class only emerges as a result of imperial civilization expansion. Uh, I don't know, but it's something that, uh, you know, middle class didn't exist in many different places or times. And we see middle class, the idea, the notion of middle class or there being a middle group of people kind of correlate with these imperial civilizations. So I, I don't know, but... It's just something I just wanted to toss in. I think. I say I, I think it's like a rising tide. I'm not a real big fan in general. Uh, Stephen Pinker, the dude, uh, he talks about how like uh, if you can just look at all the trends that doing better than we have, and like you know over time, uh, you can say like an average person would be a king in the medieval times, but you wouldn't want the lifestyle that goes along with that, right? Um, so I think I think that's kind of what's going on. Is uh, I agree with that too. Being being, po- being po- 
poor in America, you probably, you know, I'm not downplaying being poor, um, uh, but you, you probably have a cell phone, cable TV. Right. Um, you know, I see people that have uh, BMWs that live in apartments. So it's, um, right. it's, it, it, it's, 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 I think it's just a different mentality of, of what is always going to be a thing. Like, I do think like statistically uh, bell curves are a thing. So globally, I mean, I think in America, our, our middle class is a different is a different thing. But I think globally, there's you know the middle class that will always exist because just the way that statistically falls, it's just so different. They'll all they'll all have like luxury things. Speaking <laughs> on land. that, yeah, like what is luxury though? <laughs> are they just necessities to participate in modern? I think, I think luxury helps society. you be lazy. I think that's pretty mm. much it's a plush uh, helping you helping you do things that you don't yeah. have to do want to do back to the rising tide thing though that you were saying like just a minute ago so like the 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 notion of rising tide is that is to say that um if if there's a stronger economy what does a stronger economy look like if the only parts of the economy that you truly participate in are local and domestic right if if the idea is that like me living in a home and having a vehicle and a cell phone makes me feel, you know, that I'm superior to some dark ages King. Well, I mean the, when it still comes down to it, like I could get rid of all of those things and I still have no better access to jurisdiction, you know, in, in, in a local or regional sense, just because I have a cell phone or I have a car doesn't extend um, any more autonomy to me in in a uh, communal sense? I don't I don't know that it does, but absolutely yeah. the rising I mean, tide thing. I kind of want to talk about what you were talking about earlier about like the instability. Um, I I, I kind of disagree with with uh, Brock Bond. What's your actual name? Brian. 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 Okay, yeah, cool. I kind of disagree with Brian um, in that. I think. I think history does kind of repeat itself. I think, like, it's different every time it repeats. Like, in that, I think, like, there's different technology and there's different, like, factors. But I think the underlying human psychology of it kind of is the same across time. Like, I, I'm, I I'm of the... I said it, but, uh, yeah. like, hist- I don't know who said it first, but, like, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Right. You know, it's right. kind of a good yeah. quote. I was about to say right. patterns, yeah. patterns aren't repeat. Patterns are not necessarily, like, you know, are repeating things. But, um... Uh, like, I think... I think we're living through like the 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 equivalent of like the the bread and circuses period of like Rome, you know. Like, Definitely. I think, like there's all this decadence. There's all this like insane spending. Not really like caring about the future. It's all just like short term games, you know. And I think like that's gonna not really lead to to great things in the future because it's like if one's no one's when no one's thinking about the future and everyone's playing short term games, it's, like when eventually all that catches up, it's like the pot is going to be stirred, you know, it's kind of inevitable. And you can't yeah, really talk it, your way out of debt. Yeah. Um, this, this is kind of, kind of related to this, this whole topic, uh, on, on Periscope, uh, PJM said, uh, will jurisdictional exit or migration increase or decrease based on this collapse of the middle class. And, and, and I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on that because that's something I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, with regards to like the U.S. and South America, but I do think this more with regards to migration in Europe occurring. Um, uh, you know, I, I I in general think that the you know right now we've got the left versus the right or the conservative versus liberal paradigms or whatever. I think I think 
one paradigm that is going to emerge in a prominent way, you know, in the next 20, 30 years and in, in the right times, it's going to be natives versus migrants. And, you know, Amer- America is kind of in a, in a weird scenario where, you know, half the country wants to, you know, lock down the borders and protect what's already here. And the other half, you know, wants, you know, America's the breadbasket of the world and, you know, open the borders and diversity and all that sort of stuff. But curious, curious, y'all thoughts, y'all's thoughts on that. I mean, like based on what we, you know, think may, may or may not be happening over the next 10 or 20 years, you know, does that increase or decrease, you know, jurisdictional exit, you know, as, as PJM put it, or, or migration. That, that I'd, I'd <laughs> comment on here um, when it comes to jurisdictional exit. I, I think that the, the answer might be both. Kind of like um, you're saying that this native versus migrant uh, paradigm or dichotomy may may evolve. I, I think that you the inequality, I think, will, will increase. Uh, and, and you, I think you the middle class will shrink, um, and some will some will rise to a um, some will rise and some will fall. But you know those people don't go away; they don't just die. Middle class. Um, I, I think that you'll probably see this um, t- touching on the the point of, of the kind of hyper diversification of um, and like hyper locality of of uh, the world as, as we're moving forward. The Hunger Games comment was related to that, I believe. Like these very different districts with extremely different practices and cultures, and, um, and I think you'll see what what the digital nomad class of people is currently, and and this kind of um, transient um, making use of your environment, building networks of people around the world, um, kind of like uh, learning to ride the wave. Uh, I think you're going to see this this like class of people like this the ability to um stop in places and like you know as our technology uh, improves and as um ownership and like property transitions over to like i can just access whatever i need like from a push of a button or from a voice command wherever i am um you'll see this kind of uh, class of people moving around a lot so that's the jurisdictional exercise increasing for some class of people um and being able to move from place to place and have a, a, a you know resources and, and a, a you know maybe a place to stay or people you know or or access to, to things wherever you are um and then on the other the other end of the barbell um one the middle class falls out and then you have this barbell and on the bottom of the barbell you have um like hyper local and not necessarily um and not necessarily impoverished i, I don't think but, but like hyper local um lock it down stay where you are and, and maybe the, the kind of like build build up the, build up my land or build up my um you know call it a kingdom if, if the lower class is, is is as good as a medieval king you know they, they're, they're building their castles and and they're they're rooted right um, i agree with that yeah see i i think you'll see this kind of these two these two um you know you could say that they're both doing quite well um but one is one is rooted. Um, they have the they have bought the property and they're building the the, the kingdom uh, and they're growing their food and they're you know interfacing with the earth that way. Um, and then you have the the migratory transient um, interfacing with the earth uh, that way, moving moving around, tapping into flows of resources um, uh, on the move. Right. Yeah, James. Uh, I love the phrase interfacing with the earth. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah. So, uh, Paul. Yeah, that was uh, James talking uh, for a bit there. Also, 
just to give a heads up to any people listening, uh, James, you work with Ted Nelson still? To some uh, yeah, I work with Ted Nelson uh, as his kind of uh, right hand currently, um, and then do like uh, software and, and technical consulting for people working on information and knowledge management stuff. All right, and if uh, if you're not familiar uh, with Ted Nelson and uh, what his primary kind of uh, academic trajectory has been over the last 40, 50 years, it was based on the idea of Xanadu, and he coined the terms um, hyper hyperlink, hypertext, things like that. Um, also teledildonics. Tele, also teledildonics, which I think is probably a little more um, <laughs> poignant <laughs> right now. You know, everybody's everybody's familiar with um, hypertext and links via the internet, but maybe not everybody's uh, hooked up their 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 web enabled dildo. So not quite yet. Yeah, not yet. But um, so his work on the his push towards Xanadu it predates um, Tim Berners-Lee creating the World Wide Web in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, unfortunately, the architecture of the Internet has not been able to facilitate Xanadu until probably like the emergence of Bitcoin, to, to be practical about it. I don't think that we've had the... Um, the, the, all the incentives weren't there to to realize that system. Yeah, James, uh, I, I I remember when the demo was posted and I played with it at all blockchain based or synced or anything at all, right? No, that uh, was just no, a test. That's just yeah, okay. it's it's just a pretty bad one's demo. Um, I mean, and he he uh, has been interested in in like digital currencies, that sort of thing, just because he he also uh, is credited with coming up with the term micropayments. Sure. Uh, he was kind of the first uh, dude who was thinking about selling like content by the character. Right. Kind of. Right. Um, yeah, that's my favorite like, part about all that stuff. Video by the second. Um, so like, you know, you want to watch 30 seconds of my movie? OK, that's fine. Um, I can't stop you. But at the same time, you got to pay me my, you know, for that like bit of content. So kind of like you said, like the Bitcoin blockchain world is, is probably it's a major step forward. Who's making all that noise uh, in the background? Uh, that, 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 that may even be an unruly. Oh. I had to pull the band down. Sorry. Yeah, that's no fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, decentralized blockchains on blockchains on blockchains. Once they're fast in real time and and uh, integrated into a lot of systems, that'll that'll bring us towards that kind of interconnected um, world that he envisioned. Um, yeah, not to not to div- divert the conversation towards Ted. No, it's okay. I wanted to just give some background on you because somebody on Periscope had asked who was talking, and obviously, like um, in terms of you know, what we've been doing here with this group and reaching out to particular folks and, and looking to be able to share ideas and things like that. Um, you know, your proximity, um, to that, that guy and his ideas, um, definitely, you know, you were the tall poppy out there. 
<laughs> I hope he sees um, all of his ideas coming to fruition. Holy. Like, I think a lot of his ideas are really sound, and I think, like, mass adoption of his ideas would be awesome, you know, because it would mean a more connected internet, which is, which is something that I think we need. You know, it's like all these websites are kind of like their own little separated islands, but they don't have to be, you know, it's like we should, we should have more cross-reference between the, between websites, between everyone, you know? Absolutely. I mean, the, the original vision, the like Engelbart, uh, Nelson um, vision of, of the computer connected world as, um, you know, sim- similar in philosophy to a lot of things you hear coming out of the urban guys, um, it, as as a like single digital, uh, you know, I'll use my I'll use my own phrase interface for the world, right? Like this, um, you know, single place, and uh, in direct opposition to the world of apps that we have uh, entered. Right. Yeah. Um, definitely. Everything's siloed. Right. Yeah. So it's all silos. Um, no interconnection. No cross uh, communication. Um, I think like Zandu and like micro uh, micro and all that. I think that's going to be like the best solution to piracy that we have right now. You know? like, yeah, because what they've and, and that vision is and what they find is um, most people who are pirating things are, are literally doing it because it's hard not to. Uh, it's it's like the easiest way to to get the content that they want. Um, so there's always going to be people who find ways to get things for free, uh, and there's always going to be people who are unwilling to compensate creators of any sort and that's that's just like a, a factor of the human condition i feel like but but well, there are way more people that wish they could download one song and couldn't because they had to buy the album um and that's segment. got them into pirating um there's always dios i think dios is going to kind of help to fix that problem because i think dios it's like if you build a true attention economy if you make it so that the creators just get compensated based on just like attention and then that make that the currency i think that'll kind of help to get rid of piracy in general because it's like you know, you kind of get rid of all those middlemen you know, right. who are hosting content. So this is an interesting so artists, facet of yeah. what you're talking about, Jordan, is like intellectual property law, you know, and, and what we saw recently um, with regards to Steamboat Willie era Mickey Mouse and soon the first iteration of Batman and a handful of other uh the pieces of, of copyright or intellectual property from the 1920s is now entering public domain. Well, okay. That is all, that's all law, right? That's to say that, okay, we do know where those things come from, but you should only get to have, um, dominance over that material for a set period of time. Well, something like a blockchain where, you know, the idea of, intellectual property law to it well what does a law have to do with a piece of of code or a blockchain that is like you have to buy access to that and like there's no way of utilizing that piece of whatever it is if it's a code or if it's an an image in some capacity you can't use it you you can't manifest it in in an authentic way without transacting back to that source so it kind of invalidates right. some of this IP stuff, I guess, or we'll see. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the current frameworks are definitely not fit to handle, like, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of facets of blockchain technology, but, I mean, just the idea of, like, fully autonomous code, um, 
you know, which I think that's maybe more like like an Ethereum dream at the moment. But you know, we're seeing it, you know, evolve in these various ways to script on top of Bitcoin. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think to to the extent that you know, blockchains survive, you know, whatever regulatory hell is coming at them, you know, over the next ten years, they continue to you know be a prominent you know you know thing here, and, and you know, there continues to be you know upwards of you know tens or hundreds of billions of dollars you know stored through these sort of systems you know there are like there are going to be collisions that occur and and you know the law is going to have to find it well, i mean it, it, it's interesting because like if, if the blockchain system itself is large enough then the law is going to have to work around that because it's just like this is like you know it, it ideally it just becomes like a force of nature um you know it's just a thing that that becomes the new law at that point yeah. Uh, now, now, of course, if it were to be on like a smaller scale, I mean, like, you know, who, who's to say what were to happen right now if there were like a, you know, real heavy um, legislative collision because cryptocurrencies are still relatively small. I mean, it, like, you know, at least compared to like the global economy and everything, and more still sure. just a drop in the bucket. So, you know, I don't, I don't think the uh, the network effect is strong enough yet to necessarily like bend. The world's legal system to its knee but but i mean i think that is like the inevitable future we're, we're trending towards so is, to that you know the rest of the world does not observe intellectual property at the levels that america does so in in a lot of ways i'm not sure that you have to bend the world's laws so much as you have to bend the dominant market and yeah. and, and america is still the dominant market yeah, I think it's like the environment, those ideas, and the environment that that content lives in is like that's where everything gets determined. You know, that's where the laws get determined. That's where the information sharing um, sort of processes get determined. I think one of the biggest problems that we have right now is like we have all this creative content, but um, there's all these like IP laws that are, are like the current framework with which we live our lives. It's like we can't properly um, either like take them and and like use them for our own creative endeavors or we can't just like i don't know like all, all i'm trying to say is like if we were to just like move to like a dio style like the santi system then ip laws we, they would just become like obsolete and it would make it so that creators could just get compensated directly for any sort of contribution or any sort of it would make it so that you can like steal other people's content without any any uh devaluing of like the original artist's um claim to it sort of yeah because you, yeah. you're not stealing right right right, right. Well, I, I think it, i think it goes outside of any like content that we create on a in a creative sense and also just any data that we generate as participants in the network like whether that's you know personal data transaction data health data that kind of stuff yeah i, I think that con content grows uh the definition of content has grown and will continue to grow as we have the ability to like digitally represent things. Um, and if, if you've if you related to Dios, I mean, if you've seen um, uh, Ted Ted Nelson's trans copyright, uh, which is something that um, Andrew Santos has shared a few times. Uh, you know, obviously Dios is was um, intimately informed by. Um, and inspired by Xanadu model, and he, and he learned a lot from that information. Um, but Ted wrote what he calls trans copyright up on his website, and you can you can find it. Um, and it's it's a new uh, new IP law that he developed to kind of account for and handle this world of interconnectedness. Um, 
because Xandu's system was not just interconnected websites to break down data silos, but also um, a versioning system uh, and mm -hmm. a uh, blockchain-style um, you know, link back to original content. So you could have a document that's composed of other documents that are composed of other documents that are composed of other documents, and you could click a quote on a document, and you could follow it all the way back to... Um, to its source, and pretty much the idea would be uh, complete non-duplication, right? Where you have um, true true sources and like mm -hmm. these uh, in-dimensional content graphs. You're spreading able to in all follow directions. the content lineage, so to speak. Exactly. So trans copyright. If if anyone hasn't read through that, it's not long. It's just like a a license he wrote. Um, that's an interesting related bit of bit of stuff. Sorry, here. Yeah. What was this one? Trans copyright. Uh, Why don't you drop a link version. into our yeah, uh, general voice it. chat channel? I'll go find it. Yeah, he it. he wrote it. He wrote it to go along with um, Xander. Right. Yeah, it seems um, that okay. it would probably be necessary to to couple that with it. Um, yeah. The the idea being that you once you publish something, anybody can snag it, but the system ensures attribution right. and payment. Yeah, yeah or like, yeah, like whenever you whenever you decide to take someone else's content, you're actually rewarding that person as opposed to hurting them. Exactly. It's, it's a, you know, just accepting the rule of the jungle that creativity is, uh, you know, is like this endless process of like remixing and, and recombining and, and upcycling. Yeah, I think the only way that can really happen is if, like, the underlying currency was, was based on that, you know? It was, like, there was, like, some mediator within the certain environment that we're talking that, like, rewards people that way. And I think the only way to do that is to kind of make it so that the underlying currency is responsible for giving out the Yeah, b baked into the protocol. It's got to be right, protocol. Yeah. I found Ted's video on it. Cool. So, yeah, dump it into uh, whatever channel or voice chat, whichever one you think is I good. Put it in the, the voice chat channel. Yeah, cool. Um, thank you. Yeah. Now, was this something that Ted came up with, you know, recently in, in his more later years? Or was this he came up no, with no, back no. in the hypertext days? Is this a, a legacy thing? Yeah, a legacy thing. Back in, okay. he, he came up um, uh, when he was developing Xanadu, so I don't know when exactly he first ideated it. Um, you know, maybe early 90s. Okay. Um, so, like, cool. I mean, he, like, Literary Machines uh, was not written until, um, I, I don't remember the year off the top of my head, but he, he started, he came up with his vision for the internet, that sort of thing, um, well before that, right? Like oh, he, yeah, definitely. He wrote, he wrote Computer Lib in 1972. Right. And, and even in, like, 1969. Right, he the said stuff, the like, in the mid-60s, I think he was, like, his ideas were most dynamic then. And then the other guy that he partnered up with in Canada for a while, you mentioned just a little bit ago, kind of split off from Ted's thinking a little bit, I believe. What was his name? Um, that I mentioned a little bit ago? Yeah. Engelbart. Yeah, oh, yeah, Engelbart, yeah. He had a research yeah, group. They, they worked together. Yeah, they worked together for some time, and, and Engelbart um, predated Ted a bit on the work. Engelbart was instrumental in word processing, 
he came up with the mouse. Mm. Uh, um, he was, but his his grand vision for uh, like the computer connected world was was really and and the, and the Engelbar Foundation continues this work today. His his daughter um, is heading that, um, and they, they kind of uh, he he was the big um, he was big on like human solving human coordination problems by mm. um, by building this giant digital system that everybody would be using so we'd have the same knowledge base and, and our information infrastructure would be shared and and you know we could you know everyone will cooperate and get along because everyone will have the same kind of you know we'll just build that he was the birth of the uh human intellect augmentation community was Engelbart. um so computers as augmenting human intellect and iq as opposed to replacing us hmm. um, so, yeah, it's interesting, and, and I'm sure there's AI people in the room that are interested in that. And, and back in the day, Ted tells me, talks to me a lot. Back in the day, hypertext versus AI was this, this dichotomy, um, which isn't wasn't immediately intuitive to me as to why they are opposed in any way. Yeah, um, I don't follow that. But it, what it really, it, at least from what I've gathered, what it really boils down to is, is kind of kind of what I said, where there's these two models of of like computing infrastructure, one as replacing humans with machines to do things mm-hmm. uh and one as empowering humans to do more um being assisted by machines right uh, so it's just like a little philosophical switch there i guess singularity uh, versus terminator kind of thinking it, yeah kind of yeah or like uh think singularity versus singularity or something i don't know <laughs> thank you Larry. i like that yeah, there was someone, oh, I'm, I'm struggling to find it on Twitter right now, uh, saw a good tweet the other day that was something to the effect of, like, uh, the killer app for communism is AI, or it might, might have had that spelt, spent the other way, but uh, and it was like a short thread, and I, I think the premise was effectively um, that, you know, you know, the whole notion of, like, you know, repeated phrase of uh, true communism has never been tried, you know, because, like, you know, we can never really have, like, an infallible centralization force because humans are corruptible and yada yada uh but it was kind of of positing that you know like true communism might not have been possible until we had you know sufficiently advanced ai to really operate as a central coordinator so Um, kind of assuming that the central planning didn't work because we weren't great at central planning no that we were that we were corrupt and that we were we were taking too much off the top and that ai wouldn't just that that would be a natural consequence of being lesser informed operators like no leader no matter how well versed and how well read he is is going to be able to like accurately assess you know a truly balanced model like moment to moment of what the population needs um so you know to some extent it's like a you know how like human humans are inherently fallible but then also i think it's just a to some extent you know humans aren't going to be able to comprehend the type of like hyper complexity changing second to second <laughs> That might be needed yeah. to effectively operate you know i mean you, you can run a commune communist style and do a hippie little movement and make it work but to really uh, but coordinate like you know nation scale level communism would require just a radical radical you know effective management of resources and probably in a way that like no no human you know or no committee of humans could really effectively you know dole out but that potentially with the rise of you know, hyper intelligent AI, something like that could be plausible. Um, no, I still have the issue, like. Uh, you can go, Lucy. 
one, one sip. Okay. Uh, um, what was I saying? Uh, you can like I, I guess you could have some sort of like general intelligence AI running everything and sort of have everything be commune style and that like it, it's you we delegate all of the tasks of organization and and like to that to that um, you know thing. But I, I think there's also the issue of like the the, the rat park um, issue. Do you guys know about the rat the rat park experiments where like no. they basically there was some scientist I forget his name but he basically set up a thing where he basically created like in in this laboratory he created like this uh this lap of luxury for rats where they kind of gave the rats like everything that they needed they gave them like all this food and all the food they could ever need all the water they could ever need all this like you know it was like an environment that was like perfectly attuned for these rats you know and theoretically it was like heaven on earth for them but the problem is the rats kind of stopped like the the problem is like after a year or two, all the rats would die. And the reason why the rats would die is because there would be social collapse. Like, the rats would just, like, run out of things to do. And they, they would just be, like, you know, they would just, like, I don't know about bore themselves to death, but, like, the whole social hierarchy, the rats just kind of started to break down. Well, and yeah, like, well, and, and that's almost where you need something, like, not just uh, AI communism that is doing, like, resource reallocation, but is also, you know, operating on some super AI level to like maximize the productivity of every individual and, and and hopefully that would that would be taken in like a broad enough sense where we could say like all right we have automation we don't need a bunch of factory workers not just maximizing productivity like that but you know finding ways to so you have a life of leisure regulated by the ai and you want for nothing i don't think you know, that how, how could you people want, want a life store. of leisure though and i don't think that an ai can accommodate for my wants because that, let's go back to uh, some points we were talking about earlier in regards to motivation. You know, like you can't you can't dictate when I want to leave, in the sense that like you can't you can't infuse my desire or my want to just walk out of my house, right? right? right. And that has a cost, and that cost <laughs> it can't necessarily be assumed by an AI unless it's like up my ass. You know what I mean? So th that part of things, I just don't, uh, yes, we could all have enough rice or, you know, whatever, you, you know, your favorite food staple is, but it can't, it, it's not going to be able to dictate to me how many national parks I want to visit. I mean, yeah. we, we, uh, there's been a couple articles here that the people behind, um, uh, automated driving companies, they're starting to realize that um, in, in the very, you know, foreseeable future, they can't, like, you're never going to have a car that's driving without a because weather and ethics will take part in driving a vehicle. Like, mm -hmm. and um, you can't put a truck through the city without, like, a without an ethics engine <laughs> right. because if something um, if something very low percentage occurs um, you have the entire you have the whole scenario where crowd or you drive into a building you know what I mean like do people live on the other side of the wall you're driving into you know what do you do right. um, to avoid collisions or things, just like general things like that and like automated cars can't handle weather alone like so I'm just like wondering what kind of AI we're talking about where like there's a a resource where the resource is humanity. Some, there's not some 
essence of uh, ethics. The, the, the um, and, and AI requires an oracle, right? It always needs some human factor to really bring it to life. I think that uh, without that, it becomes just a computer program. You, but that's you, not. Uh, is everyone, oh, sorry to interrupt you. Is everyone here familiar with the stop button problem in, in artificial intelligence? The stop button problem? Yeah. Okay. Like being able you can to Google it. it. Um, you'll get. You'll probably get a computer. But in essence, here here's the deal: you have a robot that's supposed to clean your apartment. It's an artificial intelligence, right? It's it's a it's, it thinks of itself, right? And so you give it a job, and that job is to clean the apartment, right? Clean your house. And there's a stop button, on it. and so once you start the artificial intelligence to clean your robot. Uh, one of the thir- first things it might do is kill you because you're the only thing that would press the stop button in order to, and that would make it so it could not complete its job. And so you have this kind of like philosophical uh, kind of like well that you kind of dive into where you have, there's a, there's a moment, there's a threshold where the artificial intelligence, you are the enemy of it. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't go that close to, you know, to where the artificial intelligence actually thinks that like you're the impediment hey james we're getting a little bit of background noise on your mic um, oh. so yeah I, I just think that's like that's just because like let's let's just go with communism food and and water and electricity being uh resourced by an artificial intelligence engine um it might very well just decide that like uh because of weather patterns uh in the next five years this area might be suitable for for humanity to live in anyway, so it starts dumping patients elsewhere, you know, and then there has to be a human in charge of that, and then mm. you have to hope that humans uncorruptible, so on and so forth. Well, humans will never be uh, right. <laughs> that way, but that that's, um, I think that that's the nature of adversarial systems, you know, that so long as we can monitor or help to keep each other in consensus, then there's less incentive to be corrupted and to cheat each other you know uh, if you build the systems better then hopefully you don't have what we've seen happen with uh corruption in politics and things like that they're just poorly designed systems in terms of modern technology and our notions of transparency as it exists today I mean, like family units are corrupt, you know, like individual families. <laughs> you know, so I just, yes. I just like, you know, I don't think there's a system from envying other humans or, or wanting to cut corners and, and not play in within the box. Um, artificial intelligence will force you, like, like it's it's um, you're just you're kind of just like uh, forced into a rigid a rigidity that I think humans by if we want to go back to the original, we're talking about the spirit. One well, of the spirits of being a human is like you don't want rigidity and like you kind of want to break out of a box. Right, very much. Yeah. What happens, you know? If, if, um, it's, a, if it's well-tuned, I think, right. Yeah, well, I just mean like even if you look how humans in general have experienced the world where at the beginning, you know, they were the center of everything and then like, oh, well, they're stars and like the earth is the center and then it's like, Oh, the sun is the center, and then kind of like as we expand now, general sense, um, and we don't like to be boxed in by whatever dogma or ideology is kind of like prevailing for a period of time. 
Um, and I think AI would be the same. It would just like impose a rigid, uh, just like a, a lot of right angles in people's lives that you would just have to revolt against in various forms. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I was proposing this, I wasn't necessarily proposing it under the angle it would be like morally or creatively superior, um, but rather could it be functional mm. enough to not fall apart in the, in the kind of short time frames that have normally caused, you know, the many communist experiments we've had, you know, to, to fall apart. So, so I definitely agree. It would be very, very much, you know, ossifying, you know, whatever trends went into designing the, the AI itself would be, you know, forever ossified into that society. And it would introduce a lot of rigidity into the spirit. And, you know, I'm, I'm with you on all of those points, but I guess that that doesn't necessarily tell me that, it can't be done and it can't be effective. And this, and one thing when we were talking about the Xanadu thing and talking about how, you know, Xanadu was sort of antithetical to the current, you know, uh, silos of data with this kind of app ecosystem we're in right now, kind of a, a counterexample to that is the app ecosystem in China where everything facilitates through WeChat and mm. you, you, you have, you know, this one super app that connects everything that, right. you know, you, you, you know, do your Tinder, you order your ramen, you, you know, order your Uber, you do, you do it all from the same app, the same sort of central place. Um, so even when we we're on the Xanadu discussion, I was going to ask then, uh, but it didn't slip in right, was, you know, is, is China more or less conducive for a Xanadu type experiment than the rest of the world? You know, does their centralization, you know, you know, on the one hand, I see where there's vulnerabilities towards its power structure that, you know, they may not want to empower their citizens much um but on the other hand you know in just a lot of the same ways that you know ted nelson came too early for his time and you know we just didn't have the technologies and the organization and the coordination to implement those type of technologies and those systems at the, t- at the time you know if, if anybody can implement a system you know effectively in, in like a single monolithic form you know it's probably going to be china because of their centralized nature and their high involvement in yeah, like, AI and in the tech space so right communism works in china because they will muslim but that's why it works there you know what i mean oh. like communism works there because they have a they have a system that that scores you on credit and they're like rolling out something where like if you're near somebody who's away from them. Um, those are, those so are kind like, of new developments. And here's the other side of it is like, I think that it's indicative, it's indicative of a, a culture. No, uh, I agree with you there. That's that well, has under, emerged under as a result. Yeah. As, as a result of them embracing communism for what, 60, 70 years, 80 years, something like that. Um, and maybe not embracing, but definitely utilizing it more so than probably any other nation on the planet to success in a sense. Um, Quote unquote success. Right. But I mean, you know, (laughs) are we successful in democracy here in America if half of the people are upset about politics all the time? And like, I don't know that that's that's, a luxury though. That is, that's an interesting um, idea that that being upset is a luxury. Yeah. Being able to be upset about, no, for real, (laughs) being able to be upset about, um, Honestly, to be real, the difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is not all that much different in terms of like global politics and the economy. Yeah, um, Trump, but doesn't really do anything, you know. And so Hillary Clinton just might have like been quieter, you know. Um, but I, I don't. I think we would still would have had, um, you know, a pretty okay economic cycle because I don't think that president or not, you know. 
We got a question from Paul on this topic. So he's asking, um, what role does homogeneity or lack of cultural diversity play in this success? And I think that kind of is amazing dialing like 10 out of 10. right yeah i think that that dials in on the the monoculture of china and that's not even necessarily true to be honest with you because like even in china there are um disparate cultural groups and geographic Japan's, regions japan's a better example maybe yeah um, and same with sweden like so uh, a lot of people like to talk about healthcare in the states they point to like sweden but the thing about Sweden is that they're very homogenous. Um, and I mean, like, their culture is the same. They, like, you know, like, they're active. Uh, they're very homogenous in, like, thought and activity. But they're all homogenous, which just makes the idea of healthcare a little bit easier to manage, you know. And then you have a big, gigantic – the United States, it's, it's going to be a bigger problem because we're actually really diverse genetically right. and um, in different areas. Geologically, it's, it's a little crazy when you kind of try to compare the two. Um, but uh, and so, for example, even healthcare in China, easier on a uh, logistical level because eighty percent of them are Han Chinese. You know, um, and right. Japan just kind of has it easy because they don't let anybody in. Right. So, <laughs> so here's um, an interesting thing, building off of what you're talking about, and um, when I look at China and it's very top down. Um, political, cultural dissemination, that seems very united, right? And then we start to see these more uh, state-based conglomerations or even balkanized sort of working together um, bodies like the EU that are more confederated, right? That it's adversarial in that nature and that... Uh, you know, they're probably not going to be able to act as fast as that uh, top-down, lineated, united sort of push. Um, but at the same time, maybe... We're comparing China and the EU at the moment? Um, just comparing top-down versus um, adversarial mechanisms. But, but the EU, I think, uh, the EU are just general European nations. I think they're just a little prime for combat. China, the Chinese well, I mean, I, I think like one one parallel that could be made, I think along the vein you were thinking, Michael, was like, you know, democracy, or at least the republic that we have, you know, in the U.S. is a very anti-fragile system, and it's hard to change, it's hard to take over, and, and you know, that was born out of, you know, coming out of a monarchy and, you know, strict top-down type of control, so we wanted that, and, you know, Who's to say whether or not democracy really is the reason why the U.S. you know prospered so economically, you know, the last hundred or so years? Um, but you know, then on the other hand, you do have you know you know China's um, it, it is so top down and so centralized that, and this is a question I've been kind of coming to and kind of worried that like you know is China better equipped and is Japan better equipped to really stand the test of time and like hyper complex challenges that are being introduced as a result of like the global consciousness the internet all these sort of things you know on, on the one hand china's got a tough problem of like managing a billion plus people and like you know they can't handle 300 million people going into dissent so they've got a lot of you know work put in place to you know calm dissent before it even occurs but should they need to adapt quickly 
you know, they can just make a change and do it. Whereas, you know, we would I have mean, to do a constitutional, you know, emergency. Or, <laughs> you know, there's so, so many hoops we have to jump through. Like, like if, like, if a meteor was coming or aliens landed tomorrow, we just had to act fast now and, like, efficiently. America's not really well-equipped to deal with that. Unfortunately, we haven't needed to do that in order to survive. But I don't know that. I think as, as we go further into the future, we're getting these new types of problems. That's where I start to start to worry that, like, you know, I've said this on many platforms that, you know, I, I really think China is the biggest threat to the world, in part because I think they're the most game theoretically set up to win. Like, they, they've got a very strong hand, assuming they're me isn't like a paper dragon that's just going to fall apart in the next, you know, global and, recession. And that's the paper big dragon tiger thing is, is a real big issue um, because have you ever, has anyone here done like business with like a Chinese manufacturing? I mean, uh, I have been there and have also had friends that are in industry, manufacturing, things like that over there. Like, like quality fades a real thing, you know? Um, <laughs> yes, very much so. Like in the sense that uh, sometimes we think okay. that products from China here are of low quality comparatively, but I can assert to you definitively that there are products being made in China that are way 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 below what we consider to be poor standards who's making all that noise will is that you that might be me again sorry I up and it's okay but um yeah I, I think like you know and i think you know china does probably some but i think like they definitely have this there's there's something there like i i think a lot of econ- economists and a lot of businessmen in the West are like, because behind behind the scenes, Silicon Valley is enjoying the hard line that Trump is giving China with tariffs and stuff. Mm. Um, because I think they know that like, you know, they're, they're, they're not as strong as they really perceive themselves to be. And like, you can blame them. You know, I, I don't think the States is as strong as like, you know, all the leaders, you know, go out there and pound their chest about. But, um, so to, to, I think to dial in on that, man. So the thing is like, yeah. China is probably the oldest continuous civilization, society, culture on the planet at this point. And, uh, you know, they've iterated a handful of times. The biggest one, you know, that, you know, we're kind of exposed to in the West has definitely been uh, the emergence and dominance of communism through the 20th century. And like them where they're at now in the early 21st century kind of asserting themselves i think it is it's definitely a global politics topic that hasn't really been explored on a you know a kitchen table level enough uh but i i think it's it's natural to help make sure for them to want to branch out and establish relationships so that they can internally create uh, stability there. I do believe that um, they want stability in that sense. I mean, I think um, they're going to fall prey to like most centralized systems where like the, the thing, I think one of the things that's stifling innovation in America is the fact that like once industries get entrenched, they start to like, you know, they start to, like, rub shoulders with the establishment. They start to rub shoulders with, like, the government officials. And then they start to introduce regulations that keep the incumbents in power. And I think, like, the bigger your centralized institution, the more prolific that becomes. And I think, like, China is no exception to those rules. And I think China is probably more susceptible 
to to those kinds of uh, issues than any other. Country. Yeah, I agree. I, I, just think China, I just think China has more time than Iran and more time than North Korea, um, because eventually the internet leaks in, and eventually uh, people are going to realize that life is different. Different and um, well, the flow of ideas. I get a, I'm going to mute you. Oh, you got um, it. Cool. So I think that China just again, like back to what Will was saying, that they can respond very quickly to like threats to their power. Um, I think, and, and here's a, a, I'm not really concerned about their power until they land troops in Taiwan. Mm. Until they do that, I, I don't really, you know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, and I don't disagree with a, you that that's probably a, 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 a point for them. It's, yeah, no, they, they, I think that'll be the first time, that'll be what they do when we go, when we all have to go, like, oh, shit, China's a problem, you know, um, the military, hmm. um, I think what they're doing in Africa is interesting, um, in huh. a bad way, I guess. For sure, for um, sure that. But, uh, I, I don't know, in, 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 um, the reason industries, uh, end up getting stagnant, um, is because it's the same reason that as a human gets older and they kind of reach thirties and in their fifties, they actually just want stability in, in economics, in politics, in their life. And the area, the time when you're when you're not when you're not interested in stability is like when you're a teenager into your late you know your late twenties. I think industries are kind of the same. Right, that's what I'm saying boom. though. But it's like the a healthy government allows those new people to take the incumbent's place but it's like a, a a corrupt government is a government that allows the incumbents to stay in power despite but uh would, would you do, you know do you think that tesla is indicative no oh, do we lose you for a second so, yeah you kind of broke up on us oh uh, sorry do you uh, yeah. just to take the example um tesla is the uh, is the, like the american company that it landed a rocket on its on its rear end. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Do you do you think that's indicative of a government that's pro innovation or one that's like restrictive? Because they, well, they I, exist on government. Right. Well, I know right. like Tesla was getting a lot of issues uh, of like old like you know like um, old supply like supply chain supply chain stuff for sure. Yeah, or just like lobbyists in government that were like campaigning for like old industry giants like GE or not. I'm sorry, not GE. Um, no, you're right. General Motors and like, you know, and uh, like, yeah. But I think my main point was just like lobbyists in Congress or lobbyists in government, just kind of like trying, attempting or bribing government officials to like, you know, stifle competition through just like regulations or through just like um, lobbying practices and stuff like that. Well, an- another caveat to the China thing was just that what what I mean, China's undergone. Or has has an, had an incredible last twenty years, but there is also the question of you know how much of that is them innovating, and how much of that was just time dilation and catch up and the kind of the playing arbitrage between developed and developing countries where you know developed countries need to innovate, developing countries can just copy what everyone else is doing, and you know they're they're twenty years behind in the past. And I think they found so, you know, themselves at the right inflection point in terms of providing labor capital inside of a global trade triangle. That's an interesting point. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very astutely put. Um, I'm with that. Well, so here's sort of a related question. Um, do you all think that 
is progress declining or like um, decelerating like progress on on a global front on on all fronts clearly it's not in the technology sector Mm. clearly tech is exploding but there are a lot of people i mean i know peter Thiel makes this argument eric weinstein makes the argument there's a lot of people that that you know posit that you know we've really been in like a declining rate since the some people say since the 1970s that you know really we've just um there's been kind of like a, a a a uh, well, a whole paradigm where all of these institutions in America, at least, built up on this premise of like never-ending, you know, unsustainable growth, and right. you know, just w- w- we had the post-war boom, and everything expanded, and you know, the institutions themselves expanded on the premise of continued expansion, and then you know, I think somewhere about the uh, the Gen Xers or so that started to kind of like shit hit the fan. But because it's such a distributed system, the economy is extremely decentralized and distributed. You know, even even if like the system's broken, you know, it might take thirty years or fifty years for it to totally be realized across everywhere. And you know, who knows how that manifests? But I think um, it's an S curve. Yeah. I mean, I think like I, I think, think like with anything, like you get that acceleration, you get that boom, and then like as the incumbents get older, it's like innovation just slows down. But I also think like there's going to be that thing where like a new S curve gets born because there's all these new hungry people who just like are like pioneering new ideas and, you know, um, opening up new avenues that will allow for like a new technology curve to start. It goes back to the stuff we were talking about in regards to Kyklos and then also um, the relationship between culture and civilization. I think that uh, China's big problem as far as like what they're doing internationally uh, in terms of business, right? They're they're reaching out to get their products into markets, and then they're reaching out to get resources to bring into their industrial centers. And you're seeing that happening, and that's very Im- Im- imperial. Both the Belts and Roads Initiative, but then also the um, the um, relationships that they're making with Africa. The thing that that they aren't doing. And perhaps, you know, people aren't prepared for globally uh, is they are not exporting their culture. People aren't buying Chinese culture around the world. They're buying Chinese products. But when it comes down to it, people still want McDonald's and they still want Levi's and they still want Nike. And in China, they go to KFC. In for China, they go to KFC. I've literally, <laughs> I've, I've done it. So, like, that's crazy. It, that's the thing. Like, they, they aren't. They're trying to raise their economy imperialistically, but they still want to buy other people's corporate culture. Well, I think like and I cultural think one of the great things I think one of the great things about like democracies, and one of the great things about like letting freedom of expression. Um, take place is that you sort of birth this amazing culture where it's like if you're able to speak your mind and you're able to sort of um, break like cultural boundaries you're able to sort of break new ground in terms of just like cultural progress and I think like that's one of the things that America continues to export and that's just because like we have the we have the um, loosest like freedom of speech laws so you have as much freedom of expression as as we're allowed to give and I think like that's probably one of the only things that America has over other countries in terms of like an edge. You know? That's a huge thing. <laughs> it's a huge edge. edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also, it's also what makes our, uh, at the same time, fragile and um, able to complain about 
very obnoxiously luxurious things. <laughs> um, and like I said, like people who like the whole Trump phenomenon is, is really just when uh, you, you tell country that something is impossible, you know, the sun, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Don't worry. It's impossible. And then like the sun doesn't rise. And everyone goes crazy. Mm. Um, that's kind of what happened with Trump is like, and same thing with Brexit is like, people just didn't expect it. Uh, the, the, the elites, the information handlers were telling you that it was impossible and it became possible overnight, you know? So it's like a shock. Um, but I think we'll survive this, you know? No, definitely. I think that, uh, again, with China, yeah, you're totally right. Like they, they don't really export culture. They kind of, they kind of just like. Or do we not up. buy culture from them? It might be a little bit of both. Well, um, also, like, no, what happens when? I think we. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, what 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 happens when um like goods become cheaper elsewhere? It's like what happens when manufacturing in Africa becomes becomes well, cheaper Africa than manufacturing well, in China? About, it's like we're talking about is uh, with Africa. Right, but it's China's like China is uh, China. But it's like China, like America retained its culture when manufacturing left. But it's like what happens when manufacturing leaves China? It's like China will kind of be – like when the tide recedes, China will not really have anything, you know. Right. Um, Another market could emerge into the manufacturing base of the world is basically what you're saying. And then yeah, how do they like compete China with that? Loses manu- right, yeah. So like they, they won't have the cultural, um, you know, iconography see, that's keeping them going. Like, you, you'll know, uh, Cutting out a little bit on us. Yeah, I can't hear. Uh, Sorry, Um, I can't do anything about. I can't. That happens. (laughs) Um, But no, I think. um, I I think eventually the same fate is going to fall everybody in that information is kind of not going to be contained. If I want to go find the most vile, disgusting, evil stuff, I can go find it, and. what really hampers, what really, deci- I, I'm free to decide that. And frankly, in China, you can pretty much get around it too. Like, you know, if you're halfway intelligent in China, you find yourself a VPN service, you figure it out, you get yep. LTE, um, you know. Um, so, and Shenzhen is probably all just LTE, it's just going break past, you know, their firewall. Right. So, uh, I just think that eventually, like Iran's, we're seeing it. You know, it's just, it might take a minute, but seeing it, you know, these girls are dancing in the streets, they're taking their hijabs off, you know, what have you. Um, and I think North Korea, all that had to happen, ironically enough, is um, some goofy American celebrity had to meet their president. Well, and the president's like, I don't want to get too deep into that rabbit hole, but like there's, sure. uh, there's plenty of overlap between celebrity and um clandestine operations oh <laughs> i'm down with that we can do that rabbit hole every year. for for um, for very long periods of time we've seen that happening but i think what what, what, what my ribbon though just real quick we gave we, we gave kim jong a little bit of taste of our, our culture like here's a goofy american and here's doritos and here's you know movies Marvel films, you know what I mean? Like, so that, that I, I think culture will win. I don't even necessarily think it's American culture, it's just this from Korea, but I think uh, countries that try to restrict it are doomed. Hmm, that might that yeah. might be. So, 
I we've hope been, so. We've been going for like three hours, and uh, you know, I don't want to cut you guys off, but I'm probably going to end the broadcast here. And um, you know, we're obviously we're all in the room in Discord. We're more than able to stay there and chat. But I'm going to turn off the broadcast just so that we can uh, get I can get away from some of this technology. Uh, I'm starting to get hungry, so I'm probably going to do <laughs> Right. Uh, but at the same time, just to kind of give you guys some heads up on numbers and things like the that initial tweet did pretty well. And uh, we had, um, you know, 150 plus people jump in and and listen to us talking together for a little while. So that was nice. Uh, no, Want to make this like a, a weekly thing? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's too much. I, I thought I'd suggest. No, no, it's a, you're uh, absolutely open to suggestions. I don't think that I'm uh, ready to, to do it weekly, but I think that th- we've definitely, we did it in December and then now we're doing it today. And I think that it, as often as it naturally arises and occurs, that's probably the right amount. I don't want to make people feel like they're obligated to hang out together at a certain date and time or whatever on a weekly yeah. basis, just because that's very, uh, that takes, that's a big obligation. Um, we shouldn't really routinize any of it. You're right, right about that. And, yeah. but, I, but I would like to see more of this. Yeah, you know, no, I agree with you. you. Know, I, you know, I do want to see how we this. figure out the scheduling and you know, how we do this. And, and also, I think the, the more we can, um, or with 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 each uh, subsequent one, you know, our reach will get bigger because you know people will know to start looking out for the, you know, party train tweets or or whatever. Right. You know, you know, we just start to establish some sort of like meme within this whole thing itself. And then, right. Um, as know, long as we stay interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As long as we stay interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Right. And I, I don't awesome. think that there's and so the thing the thing is here um, in terms of like why I came up with prompts, but then also like you know we were talking about. Uh, you know, I told you before, I was like, I'm not going to give you any of the prompts in advance because then it takes away from the serendipitous nature of the conversation. And I think that that's important because we can we can have um, like mimetic threads. I mean, we're probably always going to want to talk about technology and science in this group. Um, but at the same time, uh, we should also be looking for timely things. And I think that that's happened. And I think that, you know, because we've had what, eight or 10 of us in here today over the course of the last couple hours that, uh, you know, people are allowed to cycle in. Also, we've had people chatting with us on Periscope and they've been able to kind of interject concepts into the conversation as well. And that helps to keep things flowing, but also helps us to kind of uh, inject new tangents on the conversation. Um, And that, I think, to keep that fresh or to even to have a conversation of this length um, how often we can, we can sustain that in a, in a healthy and also engaging or potentially entertaining way, you know, we'll find that out. However, I do think that we could create episodic content, Jordan, um, that is more regular, regularly released, but in, in much shorter formats, um, in the sense that, you know, can we produce, um, a, a five or 10 minute audio piece or video piece, every week well i don't know but we could talk about that so i do that's kind of what i want to do with Mm -hmm. my channel like i want to make it like really polished like i kind of want to help to bridge the gap between 
like this community and like the general public because I think like this community has like a lot of really good ideas and I think like there's definitely a way to make these ideas more accessible make it more polished so that like they kind of leak out into the general public a bit more Mm -hmm. yeah no I agree with you so so that's kind of like what I want to dedicate time towards Mm -hmm. and um you know and that's something that we should all kind of talk about more going forward and seeing how we can ad- advance that idea in general, because, uh, you know, I'm a content person. I'm a media person, um, in, in general, uh, maybe specific, I don't know, but I guess I am too. <laughs> right. I'm slowly figuring and that like, out. <laughs> I, I, I turn out a lot of content and like most of the stuff, like, you know, we're all connected on Twitter and, uh, I have, uh, well, I got a, I'm going to mute you for a second, Brian, because you're clacking loud. Um, and uh, I basically turn out blog posts every week or, uh, you know, Twitter threads every week. Um, turn out a lot of photography, turn out videos. And I think that the, the process of that, I can at least you know, give to you guys some of my thought process on that and also hopefully get some feedback about how I can improve some of the things that I'm doing. But I turn out a lot of content and, you know, I'd like to do more with you guys like this and in other places and, uh, you know, see what we can spin up. That'll be nice. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm with all that. How do I, Brian, are you back on now? Are you muted? Oh, you muted yourself. Sorry. Uh, I was, Yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm back. Yeah, everything's yeah. good. Uh, some things are great. For... Um, but I think it'd be interesting. If... <laughs> yeah. You're breaking so... up. What'd you say? I said, I think it'd be interesting if we could try to get a guest or two. Because, like, for example. We're all guests here, and... Brian. That's, that's true. <laughs> I mean, there's, but, like um... 30, there's 30 of us in this Discord. I don't think it'll be, like, the same group of people every time. No. It, it might not be the same for like this. What's that? We'll see. I said, I, I thought I was being paid. <laughs> Getting paid, Diaz. Micro payments, by the second. Yeah. You've been paid in attention, my friend. Yeah, I've been paying attention to <laughs> Good. So yeah, well, you know, let's you know kick ideas around inside of inside of our our group here and see see what everybody likes and what people gravitate towards. And obviously, you know, this format works. This podcasting pseudo podcasting broadcast. Um, format where we get together and talk this works and it kind of stemmed out of the twitter chats that i was doing um towards the end of last summer and in the fall to where i would basically kind of come up with prompts and then pitch them out and see who had any thoughts on that and allow conversations to kind of flow and this is very much um the spiritual successor i think of that yeah yeah this is yeah, the only thing I'd add is uh, maybe we do this next time. Um, <clears throat> we should maybe talk about it a little more, even if just not in public, even if just the like, private DMs mm. on Twitter more. Because I assume there's probably like a number of people, like I don't know how many are in the Discord now, twenty or thirty or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, probably a lot of a lot of us are in a lot of Discords and keep stuff muted and don't always see all notifications and right. stuff like that. Right. And there there may there may have been pe- more people that like like you know Phil or just you know some people that were that caught our, caught the uh, Periscope who just you know might not have like 
you know, had the coordination to plan and figure it out and get a mic in front of them or something uh, like that. Yeah, but Phil was at a game for his son oh, okay. today. Oh, okay, okay. But, but I mean, just in general, people... No, in, I agree with our, you. Or like, like, like Randy joined the podcast and I was talking to her on Twitter DMs, you know, last night or something like that. So uh, maybe we, we, we should do a little more like... Um, ground game promotional effort yeah 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 either either public promotional trying to bring more people into view or at least just promotional to help to all members in in our group yeah so that we maximize engagement no Uh, i think those are good points i agree with you yeah but i thought i thought this went pretty well today and and also i I think there's probably is a a benefit to um again yeah i don't want to commit to like a weekly schedule or anything like that but i think it would be it would be cool to plan out and have kind of like impromptu micro sessions where you know we hop on and you know be on the voice chat for 20 30 minutes and just talk about like ideas of the moment one tangent or two yeah for sure and then hop off not not everything has to be like a eight person three hour right discussion yeah totally engagement probably be better that way too right it's like yeah. people will see like a three-hour podcast and that's like a huge commitment versus like you know like a 10 or 20 minute video to like sit on so here's a question for you will were you taking notes today uh today i was not oh normally, man no, 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 normally i do and i i have a few if you need stuff going on around my house while this was happening so, okay uh, yeah yeah for sure so tim you were taking notes so why don't we link up after we finish the broadcast and then we can talk you and I just a little bit about what notes you have. And then we can think about how to publicize what notes you have. And then maybe we think about, um, you know, I'm doing a lot on the tech side here. So for me to also additionally take notes is probably, uh, not going to happen, but um, if somebody else is interested in taking notes and also timing things out a bit, then uh, we are able to feed those notes out so that people can look at them and then jump into segments of the Periscope podcast that they want to dial that's, in on. That's, that's, that's a, a really good idea, especially that's, the like annotate the Periscope thread. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I'll definitely, in normal, <clears throat> 99% of the time I'm taking notes on anything that I'm doing. I was just moving around the house today and it didn't have that in front of me today, but... Any, uh, if, if uh, you guys sync up after this and talk about topics covered, um, forward me like a, you know, TL, TLDR or kind of break down of what, what your takeaways mm. from this talk are. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea as well. Well, thanks for hanging out with us. We're going to end the broadcast um, and uh, appreciate everybody hanging out on Periscope or amplifying our signal on Twitter. Uh, we love you for that because we do. Um, you know, we do like talking together, but we also like talking with you guys too and, and being able to, uh, see what people think. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again before too long. Uh, thank you. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks. This is a good first session. I like this. Yeah. So, uh, I just ended Periscope. We're still live, obviously on discord. Um, okay. cool. uh, actually, you know what? Maybe I didn't end it yet. I think it, it might still be running. Awesome. I gotta... <laughs> no, no cursing. Yeah, no, I, I am still on there. Hold on. I got to jump into this other settings piece because there's so many um, little elements. There's